You have everything you need there, Sam? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows, Danielle? <laughs> Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media finds with your friends. Yay! Danielle was not happy to be here as my friend because we are in part three of our hopefully four-part deep dive into the Matt Ruff novel Fool on the Hill. It might be five if if Sam keeps not finishing his parts. (laughs) I finished the part. I'm on schedule in terms of percentages through the book. So, there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, there. <laughs> so, there. All right, Mrs. Wise Guy, why don't you tell us what happened in last week's episode, if you're so smart. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm yeah. Not smart, How everybody. the turntables have turned again. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I genuinely don't remember. I'm not, be- I'm not being facetious when I say that I do not remember what happened with this. Um, I know that the cat and dog made it to Heaven's Gate, but that was the closing of the first part. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> and I know that they get on to campus and there's like definitely not is not as happy as it appears to be. And there's something to do with like the five tenets of dog catdom or whatever. Oh, Danielle. So this is one thing this book does, which is it interleaves its stories heavily like it'll skip back and forth for like three paragraphs one part of a story three paragraphs another part of a story so you're absolutely correct that happened but you've sort of done the the reasonable thing and edited it in your brain to combine all the disparate parts into like one large chunk for each separate story right and then the other thing that i remember is that uh unrelated to that entirely is that what's his face george gets together with calliope yep. because calliope has to give him the great next great american novel yes that's that's <laughs> or whatever yeah. i can't believe you don't remember the whole chapter of dreams that you hated what happened to the oh there were a bunch of oh there's something of the dragon dream <laughs> there were a bunch of dreams there were like five dreams in this book so yeah i don't chapter. remember any of the dreams i just remember the dragon that dream. was at the very very end danielle <laughs> I, i'm telling you i genuinely don't remember this chapter it's my this is literally going to be my worst whatever first thing i want to say is i had a big complaint that at the very beginning of the chapter every every book in this book opens with 1866 and Ezra Cornell and Mr. Sunshine wandering around the Boneyard and he changes the name from Bone Orchard to Boneyard, which is a travesty. It is. And there's something about rats and they have a big fight. The the little beings, the creatures, the... (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) the pixies go, uh, the sprites go on a raid into free (laughs) the... not pixies? They go on a raid to free the animals from the science lab science lab and i don't think I remember this but you had a long discussion prior to that where puck and his friend Hamlet were sitting on a boat and they launch an egg with child repellent in it with at a the kid. magic yeah the child yeah and then i was curious if the child because it hits the yeah. child and then the child's like oh no 
And then all the other kids, I'm wondering if they're now repelled See, by that child. This is why, Danielle, you're like, Sam, you've read this book twice. How did I remember what's going on? And I'm like, Danielle, <laughs> this book is, is, is less like a straightforward story and more like a loosely connected series of scenes that somehow are very complicatedly interwoven into a story. Yeah, I don't, and I don't remember anything with Bohemians as of yet. <laughs> oh, you don't, remember, you don't remember Tolkien House or how they go there to talk to them? Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much oh that gosh. happened in this chapter. That's why it took two freaking hours to get through. I'm sure I could do this with prompting. I could do this with prompting. <laughs> do you remember the Blue Zebra Hooter Patrol? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I remember the title because we talked about what Hooter actually meant in this context, but I don't actually remember what they were. They were the, the benign terrorist organization that has a, a compound on the campus. Oh, yeah. And there was what a did cannon. they have to do with anything? Nothing. They're just there. Did <laughs> they come? <laughs> What's the point of bringing them up now, Sam? Because I had to read pages and pages and pages about the Blue Zebras. I'm going to force you to at least suffer with me. Okay, so with the Tolkien House. Skip right after that. Okay, wait, okay, let's yeah. start at the beginning. <laughs> sure. The beginning involves the Blue Zebras. That's where they open. They're all, they're all hanging out the Blue Zebras. So they're a terrorist organization that's on campus. And, they're and they against, have their own. Uh, apartheid. And they're trying to force the, uh -huh. the school to divest. Oh, and of, something stupid. Apartheid and something else. And they're also for affirmative action to increase diversity at Cornell and also for teaching baby seals self-defense training because... That's what it was, the stupid baby seals. Yeah. Like, not that baby seals are stupid, but that the joke about baby seals is stupid. Stupid, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it does not fit with the context of some very serious issues that are should be held with some importance. Anyway. So that's happening. That's happening. George is hanging out there. Aurora and Brian are there too because of reasons that are unclear. That's right. Why is Brian there? Who yep. knows? Cannon goes off. White Rose falls in George's lap. Doesn't matter. Oh, it has some message on it. To the daydreamer, I love you. Yeah, that's right. Do you remember the name of the leader of the Blue Zebra Hooter Patrol? Not even remotely, Sam. Fantasy Dreadlock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. I don't remember this at all. <laughs> You were barely like paying attention because you were too busy to think about it. I thought this book was in I England. Was paying <laughs> I was paying attention. I was paying a lot of attention. I just don't remember it now. Understandably. Like, listeners, you just heard all that. Does that, like, is something that's going to stick in your no. head when it doesn't relate to any of the rest of the plot? I mean, that's what I mean. This book is so incidental to itself. It's amazing. Like, all tangents in this book. It's crazy. When did they go to the the Tolkien house? Uh, a little bit later. So first, uh, a new character is introduced in the form of Jinsei, who both Preacher and Ragnarok have the hots for. Right. I, remember, I kind of remembered that. Yes. And the dogs have their convocation, where the leading dog, remember his name? Excalibur the mm, third. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> like, dog leader. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So yeah, he gets like he he gathers the two, or the two of them meet with them and then realize that there is more like pure blood slash mongrel the two nonsense. Who meet with who? The two the dog and the cat, Blackjack and Luther. Yeah, you got meet those. With, be, <laughs> meet with the the dog that is telling them about the. Well, I mean, they don't meet with him. They attend. They attend the the public. Convocation. Like the symposium thing, yeah. right? Yeah, he's the dean of studies. Where they talk about all the rules, like the things the things you're supposed to be studying. Yeah, so the five questions, do you remember what the five questions are? Who, what, where, when, why. Those no, are the um, five, the same joke you made last time. Um, <laughs> which, to be fair, are valid questions. No, one is like, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> yes. Dog life. Yeah, that's one of the meaning of life. That's one. That's question two, uh, by the way. One is... Okay, well, one is what is the best 
breed of dog or something. Yep. What's the superior breed of canine? Question four, which is yep. very controversial. <laughs> which I don't think should be on there, but what do I know? Uh, one is, what is the best dog food? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. That's number five. <laughs> that's the fifth, quite, yeah, fifth question. I remember that. I don't remember the other two. What is the true nature of the divine? Question one. Oh, obviously. And what is the meaning of love, Danielle? Oh, okay. All right. So all, all those make sense, but I only remember those three. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't remember them very well either, but there you go. So... They have that. Luther realizes that there's not peace among the dogs. There's still some breed anxiety. And then we have the raid on the lab. Yeah. So the little Zephyr and her fellow sprites people. Mm, What are their names? Zephyr doesn't go. Oh, really? No. Why not? She just, she's not her thing. She's not on the raid. She, in fact, she's angry at Puck for bringing Saffron Day, his dalliance, on the raid, even though he's no longer with her. Oh, well, I wasn't paying that much attention to who was on that because there's so many stupid names that all come from Shakespeare and then not. I've looked, up, I've looked up the list of names I wrote down. I will give you a point for every name on this list you can name. Okay, Puck. Uh, and Saffron and Puck do not count because I mentioned them. Okay, what else? There were a bunch of, like, there was like Macbeth or something? Nope. Not Macbeth. Close. Macduff? Yep. Um, what else? Uh, Cobweb? Yeah, that's point. Um, who else? Oh, Think gosh. of the sprites from Midsummer Night's Dream. I know, but I don't remember all the sprites from Midsummer Night's Dream, <laughs> Sam. I've read almost all of Shakespeare, but I also read it all in like college and high school. <laughs> it's been a minute. <laughs> all right. There's Moonshine, Lennox, Ross, Angus, Kate, Wakanetta, Rosaline, Maria, Catherine, Menteith. That's, that's most, that's all of them. What about the other ones for Shakespeare? Hamlet, Puck, uh, Mustard Seed. I see. I didn't do Hamlet. I can't believe I didn't remember Hamlet. Yeah, I mentioned him earlier too. <sighs> I know, I fail. I'm sorry. They're so hard to remember all those names. I mean, really? Come on. Yeah, no, they're not important. I just think it's funny. So you remember what happens on the raid? Yeah. So they go in, they start getting rid of all of the animals, opening cages for all the animals, which they then escape. But then there's an evil rat that's in there. Yeah. So they accidentally release a a bunch of rats. Right. So somehow the rats get released and then there's like a slaughter and a bunch of the creatures die. Saffron dies. And Cobweb dies and Mustard Seed dies. Yes. They all die. Puck does not die. Sadly. More's the pity, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, all the rats escape and then... I assume that they make it out at some point. I don't remember that part. Uh, one rat in particular makes it out. Do you remember his name? Oh, yeah. There's a rat that's like psychic or something. Or well, all animals are latently psychic, into... apparently, and he just loves invading people's minds. Yeah, and gives somebody gives somebody visions. Who does he give visions to? He doesn't really give anyone visions so much as as Saffron Lace dying. She has one of those completely useless "he's coming" type death scenes. That's right. See, that's why in my head Zephyr was there because I remembered somebody. But he got some kind of vision. I just forgot it was a deathbed one. Yep. And it was not helpful. She doesn't say anything helpful before she dies, as all people who get visions on their deathbed do. Yes. <laughs> do you remember the name of the rat? Mm, Ratty McRatterson. No, Thresh. No, oh, sure. Do that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I Thresh. Me Thresh. I Thresh. Thresh ends you. Yeah, that's how the three says. Yeah, see. Say I remembered something, Sam. You did. Very good. All right. Remember what happens to George next, because that scene's over. No, does George go to Tolkien House yet? Because that's the only part I really remember of the story, apparently. Not yet. He meets Calliope? Does he meet Calliope? He meets Calliope at the bar. Remember the bar's name? Because you had a very long digression about this bar. (laughs) I don't remember the bar's name. The Fever Dream? Oh, yeah, because it's the name of the book. And I didn't realize the author of the book was so famous. (laughs) 
thinks that was just a random book I was gifted or given or stole or something. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the fever dream takes place on a, a boat. Anyway. Thanks, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, fever dream. No, it does. Vampires. Fever dream, boat, bar, meets Calliope. Yep. And inst- falls insta-love with Calliope, even though he knows it's doomed. Kind of. We, we get to that later, but that's pretty much what happens, yeah. Do you remember the name of the chapter, next chapter? No. What? I can't even remember the name of the bar that I Google <laughs> stuff on. <laughs> Making Flippy Floppy. Oh, yeah, because they have sex. And it's probably a euphemism. Do you remember the horrible accident that occurs that causes the sex on campus? Oh, the truck. Yeah, the two trucks. over or something, and it has, like, pheromones in it. Yeah, I so the truck know. full of human pheromones and the truck full of feminine hygiene spray collide, creating a <laughs> sex cloud. Yeah, and then the entire city is having sex, which really has nothing to do with anything. Absolutely, just, completely Just for pointless. your listening ears, audience, it has, like... Nothing to do with anything. That totally irrelevant, <laughs> completely unnecessary, but it's in there. <laughs> and this is why I can't remember the plot of this book. This is why it takes me so long to tell you this plot, because everything that's incidental is also like somehow important. <laughs> then they go to the Tolkien house? <laughs> uh, not yet. Oh, gosh. How is that so far into this chapter? I know, right? It's a lot. There's a lot. First, Zephyr meets up with Puck, and they have this, like, heart-to-heart about, hey, let's start over pretend that we're strangers. Oh, to re- yeah. Pretend we're strangers, and we'll get back together, and we'll, like, restart our entire relationship, which, you know, a questionable way to restart a relationship with somebody who consistently cheats on you. Uh, well, at least once, and let someone pay to watch, which seems like a really huge lapse in judgment. Yeah. And to, to, be, to be fair, that person's now dead, so, I mean, they're no longer a threat to the relationship. <laughs> Boy, that doesn't doesn't solve the trust issue. So no, I'm it does not. But maybe her trust issue was only with Saffron. Possibly. Well, that's that's all that happens there. And there's also a doggy madam named Lady Babylon. Let's just skip that because it's not particularly interesting or relevant. Okay. Now we're at Tolkien House, Danielle. Okay. So there is a fraternity on campus called the Tolkien House. <laughs> yep. And it's like somehow magical because it started yep. before Tolkien was even a thing or something. Yep, that's absolutely correct. And uh, they are asking the Bohemian ministers to and some other people maybe to be like honorary members. All of the Bohemians, the so like the great ladies, the ministers, the, the entire yeah, everybody crew. Because the main guy at the Tolkien House has a crush on one of the great ladies, correct? One of the presidents, yes. Yeah, so there are three presidents, and one of them has a crush on a woman he's never met. And it's like, let's make you all honorary members so I can meet this lady. Yeah, instead of just like meeting the lady, even though one of the the guys, one of the Bohemians is like, I can just introduce you, Lionheart. Yeah, Lionheart. There you go. <laughs> so he can just introduce juice him to the the gray lady, and he's like, Nah, it's cool. Just become honorary members. Yeah, they're like, it's it's like the principal of the thing or something. <laughs> so yeah, that's a thing. And so they he gives them like a tour. Oh, he asks something about the. Well, they do the tour first before this conversation. So okay, fine. Does, does it matter? <laughs> what, uh, not this really. In? So they go on a tour of the house and it's like this magical kingdom where there's a whole underground structure and there's like a bridge or something they have to go through. Like, it's insane. There's an entire underground structure underneath this house. Yeah, there's a bridge over a bottomless pit, chasm. (laughs) Which they assume is bottomless. Obviously, they can't test that out. Yes, but it's absolutely bottomless, Danielle. I guarantee it. And there's also a sex doll. Oh, yes. The Rubbermaid, the sex doll that they bought (laughs) because they were making a sexist joke. Yes, they were... Pretending they weren't sexist by making a sexist joke. Yes, exactly and... right. Do you remember both Lori and the underground dome forest thing? I remember that there was one. What yep. happens in it? That's where they meet. <laughs> well, yeah, they're all like gathered there. Yeah. 
And then they have the conversation? Then they have the conversation, yes. Okay, so Lionheart, I believe it was Lionheart, right? Asks them. Okay, so I guess sometime in the past, one of the the people in the group, their group, the Bohemian group, was uh, sexually assaulted by a fraternity member, Mm -hmm. correct? At another fraternity. And so he specifically asked them if, like, there's any history of that with their fraternity. And they're like, nope, absolutely not. And he's like, okay, well then, yes, we will join as honorary members. Do you remember what that nefarious fraternity was uh is it the rat one yeah the rat frat row out <laughs> the, the pal and which comes into play later there's some story where they get into a fight with one of the other characters right yeah that's let's go to that next because i'm going to skip all the backstory about the rat frat because it's not important it is not important uh so there's all this backstory about the rat frat and then there's a dance there is a questionable dance what's the dance <laughs> it's, uh, it's like the the uh, the the Cornell asian student dance or something Right. So there's this dance that's going on and um, they... Who's they? I was thinking. I was trying to think my thoughts out, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking my thoughts. (laughs) So the ministers come to the the party, right? To the dance. Well, they're they're already there, but we actually follow Jinsei and her date, Lenny Chu, to the dance. Oh, that's right. And then they are going up the stairs to go into the dance and they run into somebody, the leader or whatever of the rat frat coming down. Jack right? Baron, yes. Yeah. And they get into a fight. I don't recall why. Uh, one of the goons with Jack like hucks a apple core at Lenny Crap, and he feels right. the need to be all macho and stand up for himself and gets his face pummeled. Right. So they get into a big fight and then there is a motorcycle that drives out of the yeah. building yeah. The for reasons. drives itself out. <laughs> no, it's somebody is on it. So one, of the, one of the ministers is on it. Ragnarok. Ragnarok, Minister of Defense, is on hey. the... <laughs> is on the motorcycle that is for some reasons unknown is parked inside of the building and it comes down the stairs and it like frightens everybody and they all like depart or at least break up the fight well he breaks it up by beating up the the goons and then threatening jack and then being all like self-hating and brooding right oh that's right because he has some weird past trauma with his dad yeah which is no adventure of the chapter of dreams danielle yeah where he has a dream about past trauma with his dad I don't quite remember what his past drama was, to be honest. That his dad was in the clan and tried to force him to be in the clan. Oh too. my gosh, I can't believe I forgot about How that. Did yeah, I remember he's totally these things. <laughs> totally a clan member and he was like so this guy ragnarok was like raised as a little baby clan member and then when he reached his you know (laughs) teenage years or whatever he realized that he no longer wanted to be that and then he and his dad got into a big fight about it and then Uh he killed his dad something happened with his dad (laughs) he may or may not have killed his dad which we don't feel that bad about not no not at all um and so there's also another dream that hobart has about the war with it's Hobart, Hobart, the grandfather. Yes, the grandfather of Zephyr. <laughs> right. Remember, he takes a magic sprites. drink of, of of mushroom juice and pixie dust or whatever. And oh, and he has a, some dream about the past fight in the bone orchard yard. Bone where... orchard yard, yes. <laughs> the bone orchard yard where they uh, there's like an evil thing, creature, yep. being, obviously, yep. where Pandora's thing is. Like, there's a thing. It's very foreboding. Yes, and so he gets like, oh, whatever is buried there is still alive and coming back for you, Hobart. Beware. Beware the Ides of March. Literally, the Ides of March. The literal Ides of March. (laughs) Not a joke. I forgot about that. (laughs) The Ides of March are very important in this book. Okay. And then what happens? Aurora has a dream, too, because again, Chapter of Dreams, where she's talking. I don't remember. 
she's in a fantasy novel, one of George's fantasy novels. She's like, oh, that guy over there is pretty hunky. And her father, who's also a tree, is like, yeah, maybe he's a better match for you. I literally don't remember that at all. You said, I believe, oh, that's a like a dream I would have. <laughs> well, I also often don't remember my dreams after I initially remember them when I wake up because they're all weird. <laughs> hundred percent true. Uh, and the, but the only important thing that come out of that whole story is that she has an invitation from the Lady of Tolkien House to go to Tolkien House, <laughs> the Halloween party, Danielle. Oh, the Halloween party, the best part of the whole book, which you forgot entirely. <laughs> I would have gotten there. Uh, how? Where? Where would you have gotten there? I don't know. Yeah, okay, we'll I'm move sorry. on. It's been a it's been a whole week, Sam. <laughs> yes, but you said Halloween was your new favorite word that you would use constantly. And you did not. I have thought of the word I have actually thought of the word Halloween several times this week. <laughs> I just like didn't put it in my head to this book again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well as long as Halloween is in your heart. It is. Halloween's in my heart and soul. And so they're having a Halloween party, and we stopped right before it, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's where we'll pick up. But there's still George has to fight his dragon first. Oh, yeah. So George has this, well, he doesn't know it's a dream, but he's with Calliope, and then there's like mail delivered, and he opens it up, and there's a dragon in the box, and he's like, oh, what's this dragon doing? And then Calliope disappears or something, and then the dragon comes to life. Calliope drugs him. Yeah. That's, I guess, important. Calliope drugs him. Well, it's important because she's awful. (laughs) So he has this like thing where the dragon comes to life it grows 12 sizes that day and he has a big fight with it and he survives he runs into his bedroom or something and ends up stabbing it because he can magically create things from unreality <laughs> oh boy i mean that was i mean sure a uh, couple of things are important first i said Clippy drugs him and then when she leaves he's like where are you going she's like i'm already gone and disappears which is funny. It is funny, but no. I feel like that was a very apt summary, that Sam. Was good. That was like exactly what happened in the story. <laughs> the whole purpose of this event was to teach George how to write without paper. I did. I said he created things from unreality. How is that not clear? <laughs> uh, yes, so he goes, from unreality. How could ha- that be clear? <laughs> He has a whole thing where he's supposed to, like, learn how to create things from thin air, much like Mr. Sunshine does. And I said, I wonder if there's some weird parallel between the two, or maybe he becomes Mr. Sunshine, but apparently he doesn't. Anyway, so (laughs) he's like, the next Mr. Sunshine would be a more interesting story. So he runs into his bedroom, and he ends up creating, like, a sword. He puts that, it, like, comes from his bed. It, like, appears from the bed and drifts to the top of the bed, and he grabs the sword, and he stabs the, the dragon, and he realizes that he has the ability to, like, create things from thin air, much like he can and figure out the wind situation. <laughs> yes, he can he can alter reality with his brain. Yes. Create things from unreality. That was a much quicker summary. <laughs> create things from unreality is a sentence that will convey no information to anyone. <laughs> it's okay. They all listened to the previous episode. They knew what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, but did you know what you were talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just explained what I was talking about, Sam, in detail. <laughs> all right. Uh, I mean, you know, Danielle, that could have been a lot worse considering how much you had to work with there, which was saying <laughs> not a lot to work with. <laughs> and then at the end of that uh, story, they were going to the Halloween party. Yeah. So we're going to open part three of this summary with the Halloween party. Halloween. <laughs> What's the, the Halloween ween. song, Danielle? <laughs> Halloween, it's the best ween. <laughs> Halloween, it's the best ween. <laughs> 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 All right, you've heard it here, folks. It's the new Monster Mash. <laughs>
So, Halloween party. The Bohemians... That's what it's called, the chapter? Yeah. Okay. The Bohemians arrive at Tolkien House for the Halloween party. Uh, they have their horses taken by attendants, which a frat apparently has along with stables to house their horses or something. None of this I'm horse sure- stuff makes any sense. <laughs> Why would they use the horses just across the area to the other frat house? But also, I like the idea that the Tolkien house magically knew they needed stables. I just don't understand. Like, sure, they have horses because rich Mr. Lionheart decided to buy all his buddies' horses for their birthday so they could, you know, cosplay as heroes and, and counterculture people. <laughs> Clearly, I have a lot of disdain for the Bohemians. But <laughs> I don't understand how this works. Like, how do you ride them on campus? Who cleans up their poop? Why does, like, the just ride them? Where do you tie them up? Like, horses require a a lot of infrastructure. They do. And I can only assume he pays somebody to like follow behind them and clean up the poop, Sam. I mean, that's, that's probably fair. <laughs> He's that much money. He probably does. <laughs> I just think it's all very ridiculous. Uh, so eventually, uh, George shows up dressed as Prince Valiant, along with a Bo Peep Calliope. And later, Aurora and Brian show up as Red Riding Hood and... She throws together a quick costume for Brian because he is a wet blanket of a cape and a baguette and calls him the Earl of Sandwich because <laughs> something. I'm not surprised that Brian wouldn't dress up for a Halloween party. Halloween, yeah. He didn't even want to go. Yeah. Shocking. Shocking, boring Brian. <laughs> he spends most of the party being like, oh, we're here. Can we go now? Can we go now? I don't like these people. I hate Brian. He needs to leave the Halloween party and she needs to get together with literally anybody else. He does serve one important purpose. While they're crossing the bottomless pit, he knocks a lantern off and it falls seemingly forever. They never hear it hit the ground. So, you know. What a terrible idea to hold a drunken Halloween bash in this place <laughs> with a bottomless pit. I mean, just, Please, Sam. with no Halloween. railings. Halloween party in this bottomless pit area. It's just a bad idea. It is a really bad idea. And I feel like there's no way people have not already died in the Tolkien house no, no. from this. There are bodies piled so deep in that bottomless pit. <laughs> That's they may not do anything else. They may be a really cool frat otherwise, but um yeah, they've definitely hushed hush some murders. <laughs> no 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 sexual assault, but definitely murders. Lionheart didn't ask about those though. And accidents, quote unquote. Yeah. So despite all the murder, uh, there's a party happening. People seem intent on going. And there's one part of this party description uh, that I'll read that actually kind of makes me agree with Brian a little bit. (laughs) So inside of Lothlorien, quote unquote, an impromptu band is playing a cross between medieval minstrel tunes and jazz fusion. (laughs) Sounds terrible. (laughs) Sounds awful. I mean, like, if I walked into a party and that was kind of like, you know what, Brian? You're right. Let's get out of here. This is awful. (laughs) Yeah, you could only put up with that for so long. Yeah, so maybe Brian has something. Maybe he's, he's on the right track somehow. <laughs> anyway, Noldora and Fujiko are hitting it off. So I guess his dumb plan to invite them all to become members worked. Although he could just invite them all to the party and accomplish the same thing. But here we are. Yeah, I feel like this is the most complicated way to get to the thing that he would like to do, which is meet this one person. <laughs> it's very stupid. Also, it's revealed here that while the Tolkien House presidents know how to operate the Sky Dome and like manipulate the weather and the lights and everything, they have no idea how it works. It's never maintained. It's all just magic. Yeah, that's good. So, anyway, George and Aurora, they bump into each other. Both receive the invitations to the party from the lady, which is odd because when they ask about, like, hey, did you send us the invitation? Like, no, our invitation is always safe from the brothers of Tolkien House. So, ooh, who sent the letter? George still thinks it's Calliope for no reason whatsoever. I mean, wouldn't you blame Calliope for everything mysterious happening? I mean, there are worse people to blame, sure. 
Aurora asks about his new girlfriend, who she read about in the campus newspaper, a mysterious woman none of the photography staff have gotten a photo of. And I'm asking myself, why does anybody care about this random dude's girlfriend? I don't know. So she's like new to campus and everybody's concerned that they don't know who she is? No, they're just like, ooh, do you hear that George has a new girlfriend? Old love Lauren George never has looked at the ladies. He's got a girlfriend. We get a picture of her. It's a big old front page story. Isn't this campus relatively large? It's not like super tiny. Cornell is a big school. Right, also, that's what I mean. George is a nobody. <laughs> <laughs> He's one resident writer who sometimes teaches an English class not very well. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why everybody's so obsessed with George's love life. Maybe because maybe he's gone on many a talk show talking about how all of his writing is based on the fact that he couldn't have sex. And so now that he has a girlfriend, everybody's <laughs> like, oh, my God, he has a girlfriend. What's going to happen to his writing? <laughs> that would be amazing. But then why is all the campus newspaper covering it? it anyway, it's all stupid. <laughs> I like the idea that the campus knows the secret. <laughs> I mean, that could be like breaking news. we got to hear first. Anyway, Calliope has wandered off somewhere. Uh, until Brian and Roar, they wander off too, a bit. Wandering off in this pl- this pit, late in space, seems uh, questionable. I would not do that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it seems very dangerous. And in fact, as they're leaving, Brian trips over a drunk guy and uh, loses Aurora as she wanders in the woods and the fog comes up around them. <laughs> so then he charges <laughs> randomly through the woods, getting completely lost, calling her name. Maybe he'll never come out. Poor Brian. Oh, would that be great? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, in the enchanted circle, which is just a clearing with magic stones, quote unquote magic stones, all the sprites are gathered on top of a drunk, passed out girl and using her as a giant sofa as they listen to Hobart <laughs> prepare to tell stories, which is their tradition for Halloween. Their, their tradition for Halloween is sitting on a drunk girl. <laughs> Well, Hobart telling stories and sit down whoever they can find. <laughs> they also steal some of her hair because creepy. Do they use it for magic? What do they use it for? I think like the I think they use it as like weaving material. Hmm, interesting. Anyway, uh, there's a fun fact. So Hobart uh, takes a poll on what story to tell, but just picks the one his granddaughter chose, which is a one about butterflies because nepotism. <laughs> He loves his granddaughter. I know. What a jerk. However, a belligerent Laertes, who, if you remember, is Saffron Day's brother who had a duel with Puck at her funeral. Mm, sort of, sure. Okay. Demands to hear a story about death, specifically about the war from 100 years ago, the ultimate death story. Please tell me the actual plot of the story that we're going to be listening to later. <laughs> we will get to that. Don't worry about it. Because he recently lost his sister, and he whines so hard that eventually Hobart gives in. But before we hear the story, we got to cut back to George, who is chatting with Shen Han and Lionheart. And Lionheart is mentioned that he's glad the rubber maid is gone. And Shen's like, weird, I forgot to get rid of it. But as long as it's gone, I don't think about it. So it magically disappeared? Did yeah. Did it turn into a live human? Oh, we'll get to this, Daniel. Oh, no. <laughs> Make it stop. <laughs> That's when George notices a shepherd crook beckoning him alluringly from behind a tree, which he assumes is Calliope as Bo Peep and chases after it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's Corny led dude. through the woods on a merry chase, never quite seeing the person with the crook, and the fog becomes so thick as to be impenetrable deep in the woods. Does he run into Brian? This is like into the woods. <laughs> it's very they into the woods. They start singing. <laughs> like having a sing-off for a girl. <laughs> yeah. If they break into the prince's song from that show, it would be <laughs> That's amazing. That's what I was assuming. <laughs> I'm I'm imagining that in my head right now. Way better than what actually happens, which is he's led into a clearing, almost blind with fog. And there's someone in that clearing that he thinks, oh, that's clearly Calliope. She has the Bo Peep bonnet. But oh no, it's the Red Riding Hood hood from Aurora, who thinks that his cape that he's wearing as Prince Valiant is also Brian's cape as the Earl Sandwich. And they just start making out and going at it hard. Because they can't 
tell when they get close to each other? No, apparently they are completely unable to tell who each other are by any means other than the fact that they're wearing similar costumes to their actual partners. <laughs> I and I'm don't calling understand. BS. Absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. If you're that close to someone's face, I'm pretty sure you can tell who they are. <laughs> are they the same height? Are they the same build? Does one of them have a beard? They could be very different people. Like, it's not mm, complete nonsense. If it's Absolute so foggy nonsense. that you can't even see them up close, then you certainly couldn't have seen them coming to you in the first place. <laughs> 100%. 100% BS. It's absolutely contrived nonsense. That's bizarre. And wouldn't they, like, kiss differently or something? You think That's you would it. notice There's so many things. Like, their smell is going to be different. Like, you know, the personal aroma or, or cologne or whatever it is. Everything's going to be different. Like, their hair will be different. Like, their shapes are different. You know, they're different people. Not in the fog, Sam. Oh, I'm sorry. Clearly, fog means they have to make out. Uh, and if I'm saying, like, if the author just wanted to be like magically bespelled by Calliope in the fog, sure. But then why add all the nods of, oh, they're wearing some more costumes? They can't tell each other. Like that just is nonsense. Yeah, I would have gone the magical route for sure. Yeah, at least that's like an explanation that someone could actually buy, as opposed to oh, they just couldn't tell they were making out with each other who weren't their partners. <laughs> I hate when that happens, when you're making out with somebody and then you realize they're not who you thought they were. Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> that common occurrence in human life. I was so angry at this part of the book. <laughs> I'm like, this is, I mean, like, I'll go along with a bunch of magical nonsense, but this, this is just like not how human brains work at all. <laughs> this is just a misunderstanding of how human beings work. <laughs> All right, meanwhile, Hobart is telling the story of the war with Rasferit the Grub. The Grub? Like a Grub Grub? Like a little worm. Is he evil? Like, <laughs> but they're oh. just so tiny. <laughs> so, Rasferit was an evil grub like creature with burning blue eyes and with the magic to animate. <gasps> like, animate death things? Like, imbue non animate things with intention. Okay. No one knows where he came from or, or what his motivations were. And I don't think we ever learned those things uh, at all. <laughs> he is just thing. an evil. Maybe he was a sprite. Maybe he was a crossbreed of a sprite and a rat. Nobody knows. Was he big? Like, how big was this grub? He's sprite size. How is a grub that big, Sam? He's not a, he's not a literal grub, Danielle. He's just <laughs> called the grub because he looks like a like Okay, that was not clear. Gross. You really should be more clear when you're explaining things. Especially when I said he's a tiny little grub. <laughs> His name was Rasferit the Grub. Yeah, well, I thought he was because he was a grub. <laughs> like, yes, and and Richard the Lionhearted has a literal lion heart. Oh, Sam, I don't, you are, <laughs> have you read this book? Like, it could be a grub. <laughs> I mean, he is basically a giant grub, so grub-like creature. Is he? Is he's like like a little wormy? Yeah, a little wormy like big. creature, like big. A big worm. Big like worm. A big creature. gross grub like worm thing. Okay. Okay. See, that was not clear, and that's not my fault. That was your fault. Okay. Yes, my fault entirely. <laughs> all right. Continue on. Anyway, then we've got that clear. Uh, so, all they know is that he came from far away to wage war with the sprites for whatever reason. And I am so mad at this book right now because it's been so long detailing, as you learned from your summary, detailing the backstory of completely irrelevant things, like the Rat Frat nickname. Mm -hmm. And it spends no time at all on the backstory or motivations of its main villain, which seems more important. <laughs> it does, really. Maybe he realized how long his word count was getting and he was like, oh man. <laughs> That's <laughs> absolutely not the case. Restraint <laughs> is not how this book is works at I all. I know. <laughs> He just couldn't have – he couldn't figure it out. He didn't have a plot. That's why. <laughs> kind like, of. I'm not sure about the backstory. I'm just going to leave 
it out. It's mysterious. <laughs> I mean, there is a plot in this book. It's just so covered in layers. And it's like, I hate to bring it back to the ambrosia salad again. Like, there are good things in ambrosia salad. They're just covered in all kinds of other goop that are not particularly appealing when mixed together. <laughs> How many times can we bring up Ambrosia Salad with one book? All the time until it's destroyed. <laughs> it's the Midwest salad of books. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's not a bad book. It's, it's very interesting and very like, clever and fun. But like, I'm just so mad that some of the things that are more interesting get short shrift. All the things that are not interesting get dozens of pages. To be fair, Ambrosia Salad's very popular, Sam. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm the idiot. I mean, that's always a possibility. I always, always assume that I'm wrong. <laughs> That's true. You could be. So anyway, Rasperit has rats as his troops, and he transforms them so they walk upright and fight with swords and crossbows. I'm thinking to myself, are rats that walk upright actually better than how rats normally are? They seem pretty good <laughs> at doing what they do as they are. Like, so I, I, how does they walk like, upright? Question. Magic <laughs> yeah. question. So he has the ability to animate non-animate objects. And also transform makes... rats. Just Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, but. <laughs> That's all. Yes. Just throw it in there. So another thing you can do is transform rats. Just, uh, unrelated to his animation powers, he also has <laughs> he just transforming rat powers. That ability. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's unclear how any of this works. <laughs> because it was relevant to the plot. It's fine. Yeah. He has plot powers. All right. So that's, that's a good question, Del. Thank you for clarifying. But I still understand why bother with the, like, rats are pretty fearsome on their own. They wiped out those sprites in the, the ray. I mean, yeah. Okay. A rat, the crossbow, pretty cool. But like, is that really worth it? I don't know. Yes. Rats with okay. crossbows. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, Rasperit the Grub transforms rats for his army, and then he starts, like, killing sprites in secret after setting up camp in the boneyard. So he, like, moves into the boneyard, sets up camp, and starts, like, taking out sprites. And then, like, he makes a full-blown attack during a wedding at some point. And that's when war breaks out, and finally the sprites decide to muster a single attack against Rasperit to wipe him out. And they all attack the boneyard, with Hobart is there, and another group of sprites try to draw off the rats as a distraction, while Hobart and Julius and a small group of commando sprites go in to try to end rasp for it okay question yes why does he attack the sprites again no idea okay as long as the story doesn't tell us no as i said they have no idea who he is where he came from or why he's doing anything his motivations are entirely opaque okay then hobart tells everyone that they managed to kill rasperit his friend julius striking the killing blow but laertes is like wait a minute you were the only survivor of that assault but julius killed him how did that work and hobart gets all like flustered and like starts making excuses because obviously he's lying they didn't kill rasperit they just buried him in a box for some reason <laughs> so you got him enough that you can bury him in a box but you don't don't kill him. Yeah. No choices. That was a choice. Bad choices. Bad choices. <laughs> and then Laertes is like, well, what if he comes back from the grave? He has like unknown powers. Or what if someone else like him shows up? But Hobart's like, that won't happen. And he's like, why? He's like, because I'm the eldest. That's why. And it's all very uh, stupid. Yeah, none of that means that he won't come back to life. Or that there won't be another one. Anyway, meanwhile, Brian has found the Rubbermaid out in the woods. And when he goes up to it, it grabs his hand and he freaks out and runs away after pulling himself free. It went, came to life? Ew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he freaks out and runs away and starts screaming Aurora's name. And Aurora hears that scream and comes to her senses just in time to realize who she's actually with. They both realize, wait a minute, you're not Brian. You're not Calliope. What? How did they, I, how do they realize it now when they didn't realize it five minutes ago? <laughs> yeah, well, Aurora's in the middle of, of like buttoning up her blouse again because they got that far and did not figure this out. How, does, are both of their eyes closed this entire process? <laughs> and every other sense they have also. 
Everything's just shut down. And then Calliope walks in uh, on Georgia and Aurora is like laughing at their predicament. After Aurora leaves, she's like, did you enjoy that, George? And he's like, yeah, it was perfect. I thought she was you. And Calliope's all like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's all very not subtle. I'm like glad Calliope's super chill about all that. I mean, she clearly arranged it all I by like, being this <laughs> shepherd cook. And it's all very dumb. So as the party winds down later, Jinsei and, the, and Preacher are helping a completely sloshed and vomit-covered Ragnarok out into the rain after the party. He's having a hard time. He is. The Tolkien house people offer to put him up for the night, and Preacher and Jinsei take them up on the offer. And then Preacher says, hey, Jinsei, do you need a ride home? I have a horse, and it's raining, so what perfect time <laughs> to take a ride? <laughs> They have umbrellas. Yeah, maybe like a, I'd have like a, a beach umbrella that I would strap to my horse. <laughs> These poor horses. I know. But anyway, she agrees, and they chat about Ragnarok and how even though he likes her a lot, enough to, like, invite her to the dance, which he never does, he is so self-loathing that he has to undermine and sabotage all his, like, chances for happiness. So he got super drunk and just ignored her the whole time because he's, like, so self-loathing. He's like, I don't deserve the happiness of having a girl here. And it's all very, like... Sad, though. Sad. I feel bad for Ragnarok. therapy. He needs a lot of therapy instead of <laughs> running around with the bohemians riding horses. Yeah, that's not going to help. Or he's, he's riding a motorcycle, I guess. Whatever. Meanwhile, Luther has been spending the last few weeks admitting that he's not in heaven anymore and grappling with the five dog questions with the dog philosophers. I'm going to skip most of this because it, it's just dog philosophy. It's literally dog philosophy. And if I need to cut <laughs> something to make this a reasonable length, I'm cutting the dog philosophy. <laughs> that's totally fair. <laughs> I will, however, mention just a couple of things that... The first dog philosopher in charge of the question of what is the divine? It is a pair of dogs. One is a cocker spaniel named Kashmir, and one is a greyhound named Estrogen. <laughs> okay, it's a terrible name. Yeah, and they are completely crazy. They're both chained perpetually to a dead tree, and it's a rumor that a boy regularly brings them food, but otherwise they are just always chained to a dead tree and are crazy. Why? Because they're crazy? Is that why they're chained to the tree? I don't know, Danielle. They just are. Maybe they went crazy because they've been chained to the dead tree. <laughs> Right, chicken or the egg. Yeah. And the first thing they say to Luther is, have you seen him? We're waiting for Dago, as in Godot, but a dog. And I'm like, I no, bad book, bad. <laughs> Pretty funny. <laughs> and then uh, and then uh, there's another dog philosopher that mentions an archetypical origin story about how the search for something is sometimes more what drives us than actually achieving the thing. And it's called romancing the bone because puns. <laughs> and also he mentions Dog Quixote and Rufus and Juliet. And I have so many questions. Do dogs <laughs> just have their entire canon based on puns of human works? And if they can't read human language, how do they come up with these dumb puns to begin with? Question for the ages. Maybe they've uh, seen the plays or something. Heard about the yes. main classes, Sam. They seem to have a whole school going on here. Yeah, but they don't understand people. Cats understand people, but pointedly dogs do not. Clearly. Anyway, so that's the dog philosophy stuff. I'm just going to breeze past it. It's mostly just bad puns and freshman philosophy presented by dogs. Mm -hmm. So Preacher takes Jinsei back to his dorm at Risley Hall, and they talk about how Preacher's father took in Ragnarok, practically adopted him, and got him into Cornell, and he tells her that... Ragnarok's father was in the clan and he used to be too, which is where his guilt and his self-loathing comes from. And she's all like, yeah, but he's doing better now. He escaped that. And she takes the very much the perspective you had, Danielle, about like, you know, he shouldn't be so hard on himself that he's like doing better and improving himself. Right. Which is true. Yeah. Then she eventually pivots to how she's actually attracted to Preacher, never really interested in Ragnarok as more than a friend. Even from the first moment she saw both of them when they were introduced in the last section, she's like, oh, that, that Preacher, he's the hot one. But she 
went out on a date with Ragnarok anyway. Yeah, she did. <laughs> Which again, I don't know. Doesn't maybe she assumed it was like a friend date? I don't know. I hope so, because otherwise it's kind of mean. Yeah, it feels like leading people on. But anyway, preachers like I'm cool with that. Because I like you too, but we need to be discreet. And so they start making out in the middle of the common room in their dorm. And then Ragnarok, who <laughs> they left discreet. with the Tolkien house, just walks right in on them immediately. Because apparently he just got himself cleaned up in the last hour or something. And sobered up enough to come and walk in on them in this awkward situation. So then he storms out and, uh-oh. That's it. Uh-oh. <laughs> Are they trying to be discreet because of Ragnarok? They want to be discreet because they don't want to hurt Ragnarok's feeling by, like, flaunting their relationship in front of him. So they do it in the middle of the commons? <laughs> Yep, immediately. In the dorm. That sounds like teenage brain, 20-year-old brain. Yeah, and so the Ragnarok immediately shows up and catches him immediately, and it does not end well, because obviously not. So now it's Thanksgiving time, and Calliope is leaving temporarily on her own, leaving George to be all mopey and sad that she's gone. So he goes grocery shopping to buy food, I guess, for his lonely, alone Thanksgiving dinner. Where's Calliope going? I don't know. She doesn't say. (laughs) She's going to go visit her family during the holidays. (laughs) In Chicago or whatever. I don't know. (laughs) Doesn't matter, Danielle. She has to go because the story needs her to until she does. Okay. I mean, I'll buy that because her entire, that's her entire purpose. Yeah. And so George is like carrying armfuls of groceries because he's too sad to get a cart or a a basket. And he bumps into Aurora at the grocery store and then he drops a uh, jar of pickles. And then as Aurora's trying to help him, he drops another jar of pickles. They start laughing like, oh, look at all these pickles we smashed over the floor. I'm like, I feel bad for the people to clean up your your mess, you jerks. (laughs) Have you ever been so sad that you can't get a cart for your items? (laughs) No, but I've never been left for two days by Calliope to fend for myself. I don't understand why being sad precludes you getting a basket or a cart at the grocery store. Because he's a drama queen. He really he's is. Like, How sad true. I am. I have to not have a cart. Anyway, they're jerks. And she invites him to a Thanksgiving dinner in her dorm room with her roommate since Brian is also out of town. George agrees, but only if they'll also cook a goose because he hates turkey and is not a very good guest. Goose is good too. Goose is also good, but like, she's like, okay, I'll cook the turkey and the goose. They'll be side by side in the oven. I'm like, that's not a good way to do that. No, that'll take forever. Oh my gosh, it'll be like a zillion hours. <laughs> Yeah. Also, they cook at different speeds or different animals. You have different... It's very stupid. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be a lot of work. I'm going to skip the entire like seven chapters devoted to this Thanksgiving date because it's mostly just Aurora and George flirting and making fun of her homophobic roommate. Uh, Fun. Yep. And there's also a large digression about how that same night Ithaca's gay community had it great because fate, something stepped in to make them all have a really great night. Like they're finding love, they're coming out to their parents and it's going over well. And then three men with HIV by a lake heard a song and the virus fled their bodies to invade squirrels, which promptly went mad and drowned themselves in the lake because what (laughs) what What is this book about (laughs) this book is about nothing danielle (laughs) i just the things he chooses to put or not put in there are astounding yeah like i said i'm so angry because it's been so long none of this is relevant to literally anything except that eventually there are enough gay couples out that the homophobic roommate gets uncomfortable and leaves george and aurora alone to flirt more and that could have happened immediately without the long digression and strange stories. And we could spend more time with Rasford's backstory or like more about George. And- anyway, it's really weird, Daniel. I cannot express how strange this book is. Those poor squirrels. It establishes a sort of an irreverent and zany atmosphere. But like sometimes it's kind of like, I just want to read the story, man. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's get back to it, buddy. Let's, let's get to the plot. Like, I want to read what's happening. Uh, so George and Aurora are heading out from the bar. They went to after dinner with her roommate, and the roommate has disappeared, and they just do not care where she is or how she's doing. They're like, like she's just evaporating. And they're like, all right, she'll be fine in this place. And on their way back to campus, a random horse appears just out of nowhere. They decide to ride it because uh, Aurora is good at riding horses because she worked on a farm in Wisconsin. Where did Brian go? I missed I miss that. I just said he was out of town. I don't remember where he went, and it's not important. He just says okay. dealing with family or something. For some reason, he's out of town. He's not there. Got it. Brian is out of town. And so they ride the horse for a while, and they end up in the clock tower where Hobart lives and they fall asleep up there and maybe even make out a little. And the book assures us that they're not in love yet. So that's Thanksgiving. And they're definitely not cheating on their partners. (laughs) Right. Like this is very much an emotional affair. If not, like they already accidentally made out a bunch in Tolkien House, which, you know, they did not, you know, BS. And now they're like having this huge emotional affair, which may or may not also be a physical affair. Yeah, and if they also just made out, like, emotional affairs, like, are also a problem. But, like, also making out is a problem when you actively know it's another person. Like... (laughs) No. They are terrible partners, and this whole book is like, oh, but they're the ones who are destined to be together by the story. It's it's fate. It's true love. I'm like, doesn't make them good people. (laughs) Well, then after this night, they should go break up with their partners, because they should definitely not be together with them. Oh, they still love their partners, though. They're in love with other people, Danielle. Nope, and they're not, not in love with each other Sam, yet. It's not, not the not... right time. <laughs> well, then they shouldn't be making out with each other and having an emotional affair. Like, let's just... But, that, Danielle, that's how it they have to learn to love each other, Danielle. This is how they do that. If they're choosing to be in monogamous relationships, they need to do this better than they're no, doing. I gotta say, like, this feels very written by a, like, young 20s person or late teens person who has not a lot of relationship experience in terms of, <laughs> like, what is healthy and what is not healthy in a partner. Like... Imagine if you found out your partner was doing this, how mad you would be. I would be livid. I don't like Brian, but I mean, you kind of feel bad for him. (laughs) You know, Brian is honestly a a good partner for Aurora, but he's not a bad person necessarily. He he maybe has some views I don't agree with, but he's like at least loyal and honest. (laughs) And not cheating on her as far as I know. (laughs) No, he does not do that. This is a very male perspective book, despite all its like feminism and stuff, which I support. Like the messages are very good, but also clearly written like the characters are very like how a man would think like women would behave or something makes me annoyed (laughs) it is it's very annoying so a few days later a physics major who is a mad scientist and also sells lightning rods which he has a seller of lightning rods is apparently an allusion to a a ray bradbury story Mm -hmm. he has built what looks like a bomb for some reason he refers to himself as christopher robin and the bomb is rigged up on a wagon and he takes it along with a stuffed piglet and tigger out to campus and there's like Eeyore's written on the on the wagon. So it's like a whole Christopher Robin thing. That sounds like college. Yep. I mean, it would that'd be a reasonable thing if he wasn't also literally insane. And it looks like he's been prompted to be insane by a bunch of gobstoppers in a jar that was given to him by a mysterious person who probably is Calliope, pushing him to be crazy for the story. So he was given gobstoppers that make him crazy. Like give him ideas, like the idea to build the bomb. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Magic gobstoppers. Why not? <laughs> yeah, they are. Like, they never run out. He knows that he can just keep eating them forever. There'll be more put in there. Anyway, the Blue Zebra Huda Patrol is having a protest where they've erected a giant house of cards with facsimiles of the college presidents and the board on top of the house of cards about how they still want them to divest from the apartheid company in South Africa. And this is where the physics major, Christopher Robin, brings his bomb to this protest where he'll get the most attention for it. This obviously draws a crowd and the police who cordon off the area. And then Calliope, who was 
flying a kite with George, brings him along and tells him, hey, George, see that crazy guy at the bomb and the police all around him? That's your problem to fix. Go fix it. <laughs> story is so weird. <laughs> and this is like the condensed version, Daniel. <laughs> I, I, and I promise you, it does not make more sense in the longer version. I believe that. I 100% believe that. It probably makes less sense. <laughs> so George is like, hey, just remember about writing without paper. It's your job. You got to go fix that. You got to save the day. You know, the police are here and they probably have no idea what they're doing. They're going to do what to do. And then she hands George his kite and then produces a cowboy hat to give him. So he puts a cowboy hat on. He's like, go. <laughs> Go save the day. She's been on trial by fire. Like, she's just like, it's not like you start small. You're like, okay, let's see if we can get a pencil to appear out of nowhere. No, she starts with like slaying dragons and de-arming bombs. I want to contrast this with Matilda, the lovely book by Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl is also problematic in ways I'll not get into, but <laughs> the book is lovely still. And how she like practices her gift and power when she's learning it and like spends hours like practicing with chalk and practicing with pencils and learning mm-hmm. how to do this thing. To, to, and it really makes you understand her power and her struggle and how she earned her abilities. George has none of that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, he slayed a dragon, so kind of him a main in a character dream. too, I guess. <laughs> so George's able to just walk past the police court and you know, kind of magically they all have to be looking the other way when he passes. How convenient. And so he engages with Christopher Robin, they have this long, long, like witty back and forth where he's like, What's your name, partner? And he's like, I'm Christopher Robin. They're like, I'll be Christopher Robin. He's like, Well, you're not really a cowboy. He's like, Well, maybe I'm not a cowboy. Maybe I'm A.A. Milne, the author of Christopher Robin. I can tell you what to do. And he's like, I don't believe you. And it just goes on and on like that for a while. Eventually he's like, Well, maybe I'll just fly my kite. And Chris Robin's like, there's no wind. And George like, well, then I can make the wind come. And Chris like, no, you can't. No one can do that. Like, watch me. <laughs> and so he does a little dance. He spins around in a circle and he calls the wind. And the bohemians who are set up a picnic on an overlooking hill to observe the end of the world, as they call it. <laughs> are having a little picnic with opera glasses, watching the events. They all watch George, and he calls the wind, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's magic. George is magic. He did it. Even though I don't know how they know what's going on from way up there where they can't hear anything. Yeah, can you imagine you're actually watching that from that level, and you're like watching this dude like spin around in a circle, do a little dance, and then you're like, okay, his kite went up in the air. <laughs> you're like, what's and going no, on? Comes up there, it just starts, the wind just starts blowing. That's all that happens. Like, oh, they must have called the wind or something. I don't know. It's nonsense. <laughs> You would not put those two together, I don't 100%. think. 100%. And the wind blows. And that coincidentally causes like, the house of cards to, to like rattle. And one of the presidents of the on the board there at the display on the very top of the house of cards, like it's a cabbage head. The cabbage rolls down and lands in Christopher Robin and sends him reeling. He accidentally stabs his lightning rod through his bomb, which should to be made of paper mache and filled with honey-flavored jelly beans. <laughs> Jelly beans? <laughs> oh, I'm sure there are. Uh, although honey is spelled H-U-N-N-Y in this book. Well, yes. That makes sense, Sam, given yeah. the circumstances. Yeah, I know. I just had to point that out. And so everyone <laughs> cheers. George is a hero somehow for this. And even the police are not upset with him at crossing their line and interfering in their job. But it's not a real bomb, right? Not a real bomb. Because it just has honey-flavored jelly beans, which but is no what I'm stuck on. But no one knew it wasn't a real bomb. Like, it had, like, radiation stickers on it. Cause it so, like, everyone thought it could have been a nuclear bomb or, like, right. a dirty bomb or something. And they are like, you know, uh-oh. But George, like, goes in there and just does a little thing. Like, oh, he, he, he did a hero. Like, not like, hey, that was an incredibly unsafe thing to do. Well, I guess we should be glad that Calliope didn't send him into too much danger. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, at this point... 
Calliope vanishes. George cannot find her after this event. She is gone. And every uh, every instance of her is also gone. Like, she fades from photographs. She no longer exists. Like, her smell is gone. The bed regains its springiness as if she had never been there. Like, all traces of her are vanished. Like, she's been erased from existence from the past. Ooh. And George falls into a deep funk. Like, there's some moping around. He feels like he wants to die. There's a there's a terrible snowstorm. And he goes out. And he's very underdressed. Not at all dressed for the occasion. And he wanders through the boneyard. And he slips and falls and strikes his head on a stone and passes out. And there's clearly some malicious intent behind that. Because, like, he's near Pandora's plaque. And it, like, cackles in glee at him falling down. Does it need blood? No. <laughs> Here he is. <laughs> that would have been cooler, but that's what happened. Instead, what happens is in the chapter called Deus Ex Machina, Mr. Sunshine's like, nope, can't have George die there. I still have a story to go on, George, you silly boy. How am I going to fix this? Oh, I know. And so he arranges for Luther to just randomly find George. Like, oh, Luther has this notion that's to go find George. And he finds him in the boneyard magically and like licks his face and sits on him to warm him up and gets George to be revived. At least it knows that it's being stupid for plot choices. <laughs> This book is, like, <laughs> entirely plot-driven. Like, every choice that is made is not a choice that makes sense. It's just whatever needs to happen to make the plot be what they want it to be. Like, yeah, but it's, it's all very, very self-aware of it. It is very, it is self-aware of it. It doesn't make any less true, though. No, it's true. So George manages to get up and struggle his way out of the boneyard. And as he's wandering through campus, he hears Aurora calling for him because she's out looking for him also for some reason. Like, she also had a, a vision. I was or, like, and, why would she be out there? <laughs> she also had some kind of impression that she had to go find George. And George is not doing so hot. And she runs across the street to him. But as she's doing so, a car careens out of control across the snowy, storm-laden streets and is about to hit her. And George goes like, no! And calls the wind again. Like, does his magic writing without paper. And the big old whirlwind appears, obscuring everything. And when the whirlwind clears, Aurora's standing safely in the middle of the street. And the car is past her on its roof with a very confused driver inside of it <laughs> i like that he calls the wind and not does anything else to stop well he car. like rewrites it and i don't know like i don't know if the wind is specifically what he's calling but he does something and then george passes out again i would hope so since yeah. he's not doing too hot nope so george wakes up in the hospital with aurora watching over him because apparently they just let anyone into the hospital rooms these days with people they that definitely did in the 80s what's the um is Brian still out? Gone? Uh, no, he's not. This is way later than that. Oh, that's unfortunate for Brian. Well, oh, well, we're going to get into how badly she's treating Brian in just a moment. <laughs> Fabulous. Looking forward to it. So she's watching over George, and as he comes to, they have some uh, witty repartee, and then she's like, George, I'll tell you something. I think we've been set up. Something's pushing us together because I love you, George. And very soon, you're going to love me too. Why does she love him? She spent all of like 10 seconds with him. <laughs> No, they spent that whole Thanksgiving together. Okay, for like two days or something. <laughs> she loves him, Danielle, and she had a dream. And like Calliope was part of the dream and like told her about it. And also she had a vision of their future where they'd be having breakfast together with her father. And hey, George, why don't you come with me home for Christmas so that we can make that dream come true and you can have breakfast with me and my father. And he's like, what about Brian? And she's like, well, Brian proposed to me yesterday. And I told Brian... I need some time to think about it because I chickened out. Poor Brian. <laughs> and now she's like, I had to find a time to tell him that we're going to break up. It's going to hurt him. But I think because I'm in love with you now, I'm going to have to do that. And it's like, you could have told him well, before confessing your love to George or at any point prior to this. What a jerk Aurora is. Aurora and George are both incredibly self-involved, selfish people. It's why they're a good match, Sam. <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, Mr. Sunshine goes to his refrigerator in his magic castle. And out of the freezer, he pulls a bird made of ice that he calls the messenger. And he whispers him a little message into its little ear. And he sends the bird off into the snowstorm. It flies to the boneyard where it lands on the Pandora stone. He like, and it like knocks on like, and there's an earthquake that resonates out from its knocking. And suddenly everyone's very afraid who feels a little earthquake tremor. So it's just not like, hey, anybody home? It kind of like knocks the plaque aside, like cracks it open, I think, a little bit. So Mr. Sunshine is making the rest of this plot happen. I'm going to get into this in a little bit, but Mr. Sunshine is not just like a storyteller who like sets up the characters and sees what happens. He is way too involved in this story. <laughs> he, he can't with any credibility claim to be like a storyteller observer or just like a, like a light meddler. He is actively picking winners and losers. It is crazy. So he's basically God. <laughs> Oh, boy, I have some uh, – uh, Danielle, we're, we're skipping ahead a bit. I have some real questions about that. I promise that we'll get okay. into that. But yeah, kind of. Because I'm questioning him right now. So later, Ragnarok is still depressed about Preacher and Jinsei, which, you know, kind of makes sense. They weren't very kind to him either. So he's been avoiding them. But Lionheart and Miyoko say, hey, you're feeling a little bad. Why don't you come with us for Christmas? We have a, we've rented a cabin. And so you can totally be our third wheel and just hang out with us, which sounds just awful for him. Like, not going to be <laughs> his outlook to be a third wheel to a very happy couple. I guess it depends on, like, how actively they're happy in front of him. Yeah, but, like, to spend, like, a week or two in a cab, like, a romantic cabin with them. <laughs> it really depends on the, like... I feel like it depends on the relationship between the three and how annoying they are as a couple. Some couples are not that annoying to be around 24-7. I'm sure. But I'm saying, like, how would you feel if you're like, I'm very sad that my best friend is hooking up with a girl I I have a big old crush on. The last thing I want to think about right now is love and relationships. Oh, come spend a week with us. Remind you that we are three people and you are the odd person who is alone. Right. I get it. I'm just saying that it would just really highly depend on their vibe together. I'm not saying, like, I get the concept. It would be a reminder. It's true. It seems like it would not do any better for him to say, like, let me be around a couple and remind, and remind myself how low I am by being the, literally the only other person who isn't a, in a couple there. <laughs> like, even if they're completely cool and not in PDA about him, like, it's still omnipresent. That's true. But he accepts after some badgering. All right. So finally, George and Aurora, they rent a big white car to drive back to Wisconsin. And as they're driving by campus, George sparks Luther and he, like, pops the door open and says, hey, Luther. Come on, boy, let's go. And just invites him oh, along. He know his does he know Luther. his name? <laughs> he doesn't. I'm okay. just saying that. He's, hey, boy, come on. Let's go. All right. You have to be more clear in this story, Sam. Yeah, I know. That's a fair point. <laughs> For all I know, when the dog sat on him, he like projected mental images into him and now he knows his name. <laughs> totally fair. Luther only hesitates a moment thinking of Blackjack and like, should I just leave Blackjack without telling him where I'm going? Yeah, I will. <laughs> I know Blackjack has, like, followed me all the way here to be helpful, but I think I'm going to leave him. Does that what happens? Because he's convinced that this big white car is a chariot to heaven, and George is a saint beckoning him on a ride to heaven. Poor Luther. Yeah, poor Luther. Poor Blackjack. Are there a lot of cats in this? Cats? Property? Cats. Are there a lot of cats on this property, or is it mostly dogs? Yeah, I mean, there's there's all the, like, tour guides and Sable, the gray cat that Luther was hooking, or Blackjack was hooking up with earlier okay. in the previous book. I couldn't see him. You know I can't remember. Yeah, there, there are several cats. Yeah, okay. but Blackjack is still hanging out with Luther because they're friends. Where's Blackjack right now? He hasn't been with him no this idea. entire time. <laughs> then. <laughs> so that is the end of book two. On to book three, Pandora's Box. 
Yay! As is tradition, we start again back at 1866 inside the Boneyard. Mr. Sunshine, still with Ezra Cornell in tow, is at a magic circle of stones in the Boneyard. This is where Rasford the Grub is buried. But there's no plaque to Pandora, it's just a circle of magic stones around his gravesite or tomb, whatever you want to call it. So it's the same spot where Pandora thing is now, but not. It's in the yes. past. Okay. Yes. Mr. Sunshine decides that this really doesn't fit my plans, and he does some magic thing, waves his hands, whatever, and the stones are transformed, they're gone, and instead, the plaque with the word Pandora appears. And between this and the bone orchard boneyard thing, I'm beginning to doubt that <laughs> Mr. Sunshine has good taste at all in what is dramatic and cool. <laughs> So anyway, that happened, and that's how Pandora's plaque got there, as if we needed an explanation for that. So he put the Pandora plaque on there because the grub is in a box underneath. Yeah, and he thought it would be cool. It would be more... Dramatic if they released Pandora's box. (laughs) Yeah. It would be more literary if it was called Pandora instead of a circle of magic stones or something. I'm sure they could have come up with another name. Maybe not him. He's bad at naming things. So George and Aurora are driving to Wisconsin. During the two-day drive, they just talk and talk and talk, and George falls in love with her. So she was- they're going- wait, they're going to go meet her dad? Is this what they're doing? Yeah. Did she break up with Brian yet? Oh, yeah. Okay. He skipped that entirely. After the hospital, but before they leave, she probably broke up with him. Probably. Maybe. She did. I just don't know exactly when it happened because it's mentioned briefly that when they get to Wisconsin, Walter, her dad, mentions that Brian stopped by talking about how some crazy dude stole Aurora away from him and he's a bad influence. (laughs) So she told him that she was breaking up with him for another guy? Not really, but he figured it out pretty quickly because, duh. Are you sure she didn't tell him that? (laughs) I'm pretty sure she didn't say it. Uh, He clearly put two and two together because they live in the same town. And he's like, who are you going home with? And he's like, I'm going home with George. Oh, okay. That's true. Everybody is aware of George's love life. I forgot. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so she broke up with him finally. So they fall in love on the drive back uh, and they arrive there and Walter is delighted with George because it's much. she's much better than Brian as a better fit because he's much more counterculture and uh, weird than Brian who's too straight laced and honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want and that for your daughter. Um, right? Is Brian ever come back into the story? Or is it like the end of Brian? Uh, as far as I've read, it's the end of Brian. I'll leave it there. <laughs> Poor Brian. <laughs> what a sad end. <laughs> he might come back briefly, but I remember. Remember Jack Barron, the big evil guy from the Rat Frat? Yeah. Also, never comes back as far as I've read so far. That's impressive because he really seemed like he might come back. Maybe he turns evil later. He's going to come back. It's just crazy how long there is between like the setup and the payoff for a lot of the stuff. Yeah, that's like multiple chapters, like long chapters, not no, short ones. It's like multiple hundreds of pages <laughs> before he before he's even brought up again. Like not even that. Like I have to expect him to have the, his story come to a conclusion immediately. But like he's not you know, foreshadowed again. He's not mentioned again. He doesn't have like a little scene. Nothing. He's just out of the picture until he needs to, to pop back up for the conclusion. I think that's such a hard way to write because then you're like, so remember that guy from 600 pages ago? <laughs> yeah, pretty much what happens. <laughs> he's really important right now. I'm just you know I wanted to remind you all about that before we went into it. <laughs> It's Yeah, it's, it's wild. It's like when the murderer in a story is that person that was like the gas station attendant for two paragraphs in the book. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the way that people write murder mysteries when they're not very good at writing murder mysteries. Exactly. So Walter's delighted with George and he even like, hey, Luther's a cool dog. The mother's out of town. So they all have dinner together with Luther sitting at the table, eating all that good food with them just at the table. So he took this dog. Did you just think the yep. dog was like homeless? He thought it was one of the many strays that wander around campus because of the edict that lets dogs wander around campus. Got it. So he was just kind of like rescuing the dog. 
And Luther knew Maybe. that this was happening, that he was pretty much like leaving, leaving, and he didn't tell Blackjack. Yeah. yeah. What a little punk. I know. Luther thinks, this is it, I'm going to heaven in a magic chariot with an angel or a saint or something. And yeah. he, he does shout back out the window to like one of the other cats, hey, or one of the other dogs, hey, tell Blackjack I'm leaving. I'm going to heaven. It'll be fine. I'll be back for him. But the other dog runs into like a signpost and like, obviously probably does not get the full message. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Poor Blackjack. Danielle, just based on that, you don't know how much I'm leaving out. <laughs> <laughs> that is weird. There's so much I leave out of this book. So Walter does a little bit of interrogating on George, like, you know, asking him questions like, how have you been kicked off a felony? Would you ever commit a felony? So on and so forth. But he wants the answers to be yes, right? Yeah, he wants the answer to be yes. Because <laughs> he's like, everything has to be, you know, counterculture and, and stick it to the man kind of stuff. What a weird dad. <laughs> but what he says to, to, to George is, before all this interrogation is, I have sharp eyes. I'll know if you're lying. Which, like... Lionheart did the same thing to Shen Han when he's asking about the sexual assaults in the frat. Like, mm -hmm. is this a thing in this universe? Do people just be able to, like, see lies? How does this work? Because in real life, it's not that hard to lie, and lies go past people all the time. It's not hard to lie. People lie constantly. You know, mostly white lies, which are, are important and essential for a human society to function. <laughs> And our important part of human communication, which I'm not going to get into, but... <laughs> it's a whole other podcast. Yeah. But even the big whoppers can are not that hard for most people to don't figure it out. Unless it's like a... Anyway, it's crazy, but apparently they can just see lying in this book. The next day, Aurora takes George to an old abandoned barn that she used as a fort when she was a kid, even though everyone else was afraid of it because they thought it was haunted. It's definitely not. No. Up in a loft, she pulls aside... Uh, like a, She pulls up a floorboard in the hayloft. And pulls out an old bottle of wine from like 17-something, 96 or whatever, and some glasses and a corkscrew. And George is like, hey, when did you come up here to sneak those out? She's like, oh, they've been here since I was 12 because a friendly old man gave them to me when I was 12 and said, hey, keep these until you need them here. Okay, creepy old man. <laughs> and she did. And it was obviously Mr. Sunshine who gave them to her back in the day. Like, hey, here's a bottle of wine, some glasses and a corkscrew. Hide these in your barn, you 12-year-old child, you, and you'll know when you need them. That is so sketchy. It is amazingly uncool. There's no way as a 12-year-old child um, that I ever would have accepted anything from strangers. <laughs> Aurora's like, you seem nice enough and is totally one with it. That's not how that worked. No. She must have grown up in a very sheltered environment where it wasn't weird to accept things from strangers. Or like, you know, Mr. Sunshine did some creepy magic to like suppress her urge to be reasonable and run away from this creepy old man. Yeah, I'd have to assume that's the only other thing because just no. It's like, it's so wrong. <laughs> so bad. It is crazy. Anyway, uh, the book then spends a lot of time describing the sex they have, which is like the most amazing sex ever, apparently, even though it's Aurora's first time, because a girl must always be a virgin, at least if they're worthy of the main hero. She's been with Brian this entire time and they didn't have sex? Nope, because they're good Christians, remember? No, I mean, fine, but I highly doubt that. <laughs> I know. It's BS. <laughs> But also, it's like, well, that's important because even though George, you know, has a lot of experience, there's they have this argument about like, first, it's gross in a hayloft that's like an old abandoned hayloft that's clearly going to yeah. be moldy and full of bugs and stuff. Absolutely rancid hay. But they also have this weird semantic argument like, where George's like, I've had sex, but I've never made love, so I'm still a virgin too. And they have like this whole argument about like, what does it mean to be a virgin? And I'm just no. like, I don't care. The semantic argument about virginity is stupid. Virginity as a concept is generally pretty stupid in general <laughs> in our society. 
And like, it just feels, again, very like male gazy in a way. Like, oh, she has to be a virgin to make it like special for their first time with her true love thing. And it just, it feels gross. It does. That's gross. <laughs> anyway, I'm just going to not go into that anymore. Uh, I'm going to talk about Preacher and Jinsei, who uh, meanwhile are having a fun time. They're wandering around campus. There's a snowball fight breaking out and they eventually find their way to the boneyard. Does Preacher ever go and like have an adult conversation with his friend? Ragnarok? He tries. Yeah. Ragnarok just avoids him and she can't and he can't find him. So. Okay. I just want to make sure he gave it an attempt. He gave it an attempt. Right. So Preacher and Jinsei, they wander to the boneyard. They're kind of creeped out. And they eventually find the... They wander to the place where Pandora's plaque is. And Preacher finds himself like pulled under the, a big old snowbank. And he's like, oh, there's something underneath the snow here. And he fishes down there and he pulls out a metal box. The plaque is gone. What he has is the metal box. Uh-oh. And the box is sort of wrapped in a silver ribbon, like actual metallic silver. And it's been soldered shut. And Jinsei's like... I don't really like this box. Can we just like leave it and get the heck out of here? And Preacher's like, no, let me open it. And he feels like this compulsion to open the box. He starts like tearing off the silver ribbon. He puts it in his pocket and he like pries off the solder and he pulls the box open. As just as he's about to open it, the messenger bird that Mr. Sunshine has sent out attacks him. And he drops the box and runs out of the boneyard with Jinsei. Okay. So was Mr. Sunshine like trying to stop him from opening the box? No. He was letting him open. Like the messenger was there watching them. He was waiting to the moment they open the box to then get them out like their whole purpose was to be a vehicle to open the box so he does open the actual box yeah he opens the box actually like he gets the seals broken just about to like look inside of it he doesn't see what's inside of it he just okay. you know gets to that point when he's scared off by the do you think there's bird. some kind of symbolism where the preacher opens pandora's box considering preachers didn't exist in greek mythology i don't think so are you sure i mean it's weird maybe i honestly i don't know danielle <laughs> i'm just wondering some kind of like religious I know I know it's not related to Greek mythology, but I'm just curious about the crossover between having that specific character. It could have just been random, but that specific character opening the box versus any other character. Well, there's a reason these two open the box because they become the target of Rasperit's wrath or whatever. Like they're his first targets now because he sees sure. them. But he but- could have been any two characters i think the fact that they're the target is important okay i mean if it is some kind of symbolism it's one that is much more settled than the rest of the symbolism in this book Mm -hmm. and i could be missing it but it feels more like it needs to be them so they can be the targets later so that the whole ragnarok preacher jinsei thing can be like done and come to a head or whatever right so it feels more like a plot reason than it does a literary or metaphorical reason but i could be wrong i'm willing to admit that so they're chased out of the grave grown Bone orchard yard stone. <laughs> the chase out of the bone yard orchard gravestone place, yes. And <laughs> yeah, that's that happens. And then Mr. Sunshine sees them open the box. He's like, Yes, the box is open. Oh, what next? What next? Oh, right, the dog. And so he writes a message on a piece of paper and puts it in a pneumatic tube to the underworld. The a pneumatic tube to the underworld? Yeah, he puts a message in like a like a like a pneumatic tube from like a bank. It goes to the underworld and he sends a message to the underworld via pneumatic tube. And I'm like, okay, who is Mr. Sunshine? Why does he have a direct <laughs> line to the underworld? Why do people live if he's just like an artist writing stories and meddling a little bit? then why does he have like command over the freaking underworld and seemingly over all reality time and space and i like that the best solution to get stuff to the underworld is a pneumatic tube it's not like anything else <laughs> i mean to be fair he does actually like the pneumatic tube but it's like some reason it's just, i forget why but it's just like somehow they insist on using these old methods i mean they're super helpful how many times in your life have you thought i wish i had one of those tubes to like all the time i want one across. in my apartment just to send snacks <laughs> to my fridge to my couch <laughs> I, I, 
they'd be good at a job they'd be good at home like they're they're totally valid invention pneumatic tubes are awesome don't be wrong i'm all for that too the question to me isn't why is there a pneumatic tube the question is why is mr sunshine able to command the underworld i don't know does it go like to another person do you find anything out about the underworld no Nope, this is literally <laughs> all we know about this whole thing. Wild. So anyway, later, George and Walter pressure Aurora to get stoned, which she does because they're good parents and, and new boyfriends. <laughs> and Walter even blows smoke into Luther's face so that the dog gets stoned too, because that's not cool. I'll just say that's not cool. Don't like force your dogs to get stoned. It's not, they don't have a, a way to consent. It's not okay. <laughs> Poor puppy. So then Luther wanders off through the house and sees a vision of old Moses. Remember old Moses? Yeah, the one that died that he the went dog that, to heaven for. Yes. Uh-huh. So this is why, presumably, Mr. Sunshine wrote to the underworld, to get them to send him a vision of old Moses. Okay, sure. That's my guess, because it's never made clear what happens, but this is what I'm guessing happens just the way so that he needs two parts of the story. So he needs help from the underworld. He, like, can't just make it happen himself. He seems to be able to control everything else. Daniel, I do not know, but all I know is Mr. Sunshine sends a note to the underworld, and the next, immediately after that, the book is talking about old Moses being a vision as a ghost to Luther. I don't understand why that's required in the plot, but okay. It, that's I don't know, Danielle. I don't know either. I cannot explain any of this. <laughs> he just seems to not need help with anything else. He seems to have absolute control over anything he wants to happen. I don't understand why this is the one thing that he needed help with. I, it, it, it's absolutely crazy. So old Moses starts talking to Luther and is like, Luther, you're not in heaven. You never got to heaven. You can't get to heaven by walking there. You can only get there by dying and you ain't dying yet kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he says, I know you like it here. You're having a good time. This is a really nice place, but you have to leave, Luther. You just have to leave. You can't be here anymore. You have to go back to Cornell and make the walk, the trek back to that place again. And Luther's like, "Uh, but I like it here. There's lots of good food. There's nice people. Why would I want to go back to, you know, I I mean, I miss Blackjack, but why do I want to go back? And Moses is like, nope, you just got to go. It's going to be really hard, but you made the journey once on foot and you can make it again, even though he's from going from a Wisconsin this time instead of from like New York. (laughs) And Luther's like finally reluctantly agrees to do this. So he couldn't just wait a couple of days when they drive back to the school after the holidays. Nope, had to go now on his own. (laughs) He has to make an odyssey essentially. Like this is his thing. He has to appeal to the odyssey. He already did an odyssey. This is just like Odyssey Redux. (laughs) (laughs) Odyssey 2, Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) Like, well, how many odysseys does one need in one's lifetime? (laughs) Well, apparently the first one didn't stick to Luther, so he's another one. (laughs) Poor Luther. Every, like, the characters are not treated very well in this book and in service of the main characters who are the worst people. And Luther is not, no offense to Luther, the smartest dog in the pack here. And Blackjack got him out and into a lot of trouble. And I feel like I'm not sure he's going to survive without Blackjack. Moses seems pretty convinced he will. Yeah. But I'm also dubious. <laughs> because of, Only because he's like fated to go back or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, later, we cut back to the boneyard where Rasford the Grub is free and crawling out of his box, but powerless. He has lost all his magic. He's consumed it all to sustain himself for a hundred years in his tomb, his prison. Does he do anything fun when he comes out like, I'm alive? No, he no. sort of crawls around because he's a coward and doesn't want to draw attention to himself. Oh, I'm so sad. I wanted him to be very dramatic when he was It would be better reborn. if he was. <laughs> yeah. The messenger bird flies over to Rasferet, who at first is kind of scared about, of him, but the bird says, hey, I got a deal for you. Although, again, none of this is actually said. It's all just sort of conveyed through mutual understanding and psychic blinks or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> psychic blinks. Psychic links, but blinks would be better. 
<laughs> he said psychic blinks, which made sense somehow. <laughs> I, they're just blinking at each other like Morse code to, to understand each other. That'd be really cool. <laughs> I assume that was kind of what it looked like from an outsider's perspective. They're just blinking at each other as they talk. My brain may have said psychic blinks because it knew that was a cooler phrase. <laughs> it is a cooler phrase. Anyway. Uh, so the deal is that Rashford will get his magic back enough to get revenge and do everything he wants to do, but there will be a powerful opponent set up against him. And this time, not a sprite, but a big person. And to keep his magic, he would have to defeat this big person in a battle that is to come. And his power would only rise slowly, peaking on the Ides of March. Okay, so here's what I want to happen in this plot, Sam. Yep. I want Ra- is Rasferit. Is that his name? Rasferit. Like, uh, all right, like Ras and then Ferret. All right, I want Rasferit. I want this story to actually Rasferit's story, like his uh-huh. origin story. And so this whole book is really just to build up to Rasferit taking over and destroying the humans and becoming the most powerful creature in the land. The end. This could be like a. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, the uh, Ralph Bakshi movie, Wizards. I don't think so. Okay. Well, it's about a post apocalyptic world where humans wipe each other out with nuclear weapons or whatever, and magic sprites take over the world, and there's still conflict. Whatever. It's um. It's weird. But this could be a prequel to that. Yes, it could be. <laughs> where Rasferit sort of takes over and he made himself out and suddenly all the magic sprites and stuff in the book take over the planet. How much fun would that be for the last quarter of this novel? <laughs> it was just a, a prequel somehow to the Ralph Baxi movie Wizards, which is a movie that is not – I wouldn't recommend going out and watching it. It's, it's a very specific taste. <laughs> okay. Duly noted. As most Ralph Baxi movies are. Anyway – uh, that'd be awesome. It'd be way cooler. This story does not do that because Rasperet takes him up on the offer, obviously, because he has no other choice. He's either being powerless or get power back. So, duh. So he used all his power in the last hundred years to like sustain himself underneath the ground, right? Yeah, to be so, alive while he was locked in Pandora's box. So what if, if he just like waited it out, would he slowly, gradually regain his power without fighting some epic battle? Unclear. Probably not. I think he's just powerless now until <laughs> Mr. Sunshine intervenes to give him power back, which again, feels not like a storyteller is like, let me set up Rasford up against George and see who wins. It feels like you're like literally stacking the deck, giving someone who's already lost their power back. If feels very different you know it feels like if, if mr sunshine's supposed to be like the referee in the sports match like trying to like keep things fair and cause like an interesting game but it feels like he's been bribed to <laughs> intervene on one side's behalf <laughs> so I'm, I'm calling mr sunshine out on being like nonsense like he is not just a storyteller he is just a meddler or something i don't know what he is but storyteller is not it <laughs> Because he makes it sound like he's kind of just like watching how things play out, but he's very involved. Right. Like, and I get that he's writing things down, but it's never really clear if he's just like writing them as they're happening and he sort of like changes it or if he's like actively directing things. If he's controlling everything from the start, he has complete control over everything. That means he's no more interesting than any normal author writing any other story. He just happens to be writing with characters who are real people and manipulating them as opposed to just text. Right. And it's not just that he's like writes with the world and like uses characters and lets them them, you know, write the story to themselves too. He's just writing a story and pretending it's better than something else. <laughs> anyway, Rasford with his power back, or some of it at least, sets out a call and 50 rats answer his call to become this new army. Are these the rats from the thing? Has he met Thrush yet? Is Thrush in the rat? We'll get there. Okay. So... As the rats surround him, he begins a transformation process to make them, you know, walk and bipedal, and they transform their trash they brought with them into weapons like crossbows and and swords. But, like, (laughs) most of the rats die. Like, only less than half the rats survive this transformation process, which 
Seems, again, wasteful. If you are trying to raise an army, maybe don't wipe out most of them in an unnecessary transformation to make them walk upright, which I'm still not convinced that makes them better warriors. <laughs> what? Like, why does it make them die? Because it's like a, a, a terrible process. Like when their spine straighten and their legs change, like they get physically transformed and all of them are strong enough to survive the transformation process. Do they like consent to this transformation? Do they want to be changed? I'm not sure they like, they, they, they enter his call. I'm not sure they really knew what they were getting into, but he doesn't care. Yeah, but he has a magical call. Maybe they're like prompted to answer his call. Like they have to. For whatever reason, the rats seem utterly loyal to Rasperit with no prompting. Okay, sure. I'm willing to go with it. Thresh is also there, obviously, and he gets appointed to be the general of Rasperit's army. Just because. Because they have like a moment where they look at each other and they have a connection. He's like, yeah, you're the general now. Although he doesn't say it. They just, it goes unsaid. It's because it's the only rat with a name. Yeah, it's the only rat with a name and they have that psychic blink that makes it so he knows he's the general now. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, psychic blinks. All right. Now we enter the chapter called The Killing Hour. I want to read for you the paragraph that opens this chapter because you, you just have to hear this. Wind the clock for a killing hour then. Let it begin just before the turn of years at 11.15 on the night of December 31st with the snapping of a branch. Let it conclude 58 minutes later at 13 past midnight with a sound like fingernails on a coffin and set it up just so. Okay. I know, right? <laughs> Was that Mr. Sunshine? No, that is the that is the narrator. The narrator. And it's really a killing hour if it's only 58 minutes? You know what? I guess he's rounding up Danielle. <laughs> he's like, he's like I build by the quarter hour. So always round up to the nearest quarter hour. <laughs> Seems questionable at best. I mean, you only got 48 minutes of killing hour, but, you know, I, I got to build in the full quarter hour. So I got to bill you for the full hour. Sorry. That's questionable. <laughs> It's New Year's Eve, and although Preacher and Jinsei were invited to celebrate at Tolkien House with Noldoran and Fujiko, who were also still on campus, Jinsei was roped to working late at the library, which she works at, uh, reorganizing the card catalog, which is something that apparently is super important and cannot wait until after New Year's. <laughs> it's desperately important, Sam. We need that card catalog organized. Or something. And they're, they're reorganizing something. Uh, so Preacher is like, okay, fine, but he gives her like a little wooden bracelet as a gift that he made for her, or had someone made for her. Uh, the key feature of this bracelet is that in the wood, like inset as like a ring around the entire bracelet, is the silver ribbon he got from the boneyard. That's a choice. Yeah, he, the one he pulled off the box when uh-huh. they were attacked. That's what I definitely want is a reminder of the time we got attacked in the graveyard. <laughs> By a magic bird. And Jinsei on time was like, I, what? This is very creepy. And Pooh's like, no, I just I had a feeling that you would need this. So here, take it. And she's like, creepy. fine, and puts it on. I wouldn't trust the little boy who decided that he needed to open up the creepy box in the boneyard. <laughs> no, it's absolutely nonsense. But she puts it on and Preacher heads off to Tolkien House without her because she says she'll meet with him later after they finish organizing in a few hours. So that's either going to bring them to her or it's going to protect her in some way, right? <laughs> <laughs> you are going to be so upset for how this turns out. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rasferit is planning his first animation in many years, and he does this by sending a portion of his soul or his spirit or whatever into the thing he plans to animate. And so he sends his soul chunk out and it starts scouring the area looking for the thing to animate. Like, he doesn't animate a particular thing, it seems. He just says, I need something to animate to accomplish a task, and the right thing is found to be animated. Oh, that's handy. I know, right? So guess what it finds to animate, Danielle? Mm, I don't know. A tree. The rubber maid. The ru- oh, God, I should have guessed. That's so creepy. Why? 
It is very creepy. And it's, it's because it's very creepy that it animates the Rubbermaid. But also, like, here's my question. If the Rubbermaid isn't animated by Rasford until now, how did it grab Brian during the Halloween party? Maybe it didn't grab him during the Halloween party. Maybe no, it, it did. Maybe it just felt like it did because they were in the Enchanted no. Fog. <laughs> it absolutely did grab him. The book was clear Maybe about Mr. That. Sunshine was just getting, like, drunk and was having kicks and giggles while he was watching all this unfold. I'm just saying, it does not track. And I'm getting calling shenanigans on this book. Like, it's, again, that felt like <laughs> it had to happen for the plot as opposed to anything that made any sense. <laughs> I don't like that it's animated. <laughs> No, it is animated, and it is uh, got glowing blue eyes now, because Rasper has glowing blue eyes. Anything he animates has glowing blue eyes, and it is. Oof, boy, Danielle, we're going to get into it right now. I don't want to get into it, Sam. <laughs> Meanwhile, Fujiku and Nodoran are having sex in the middle of Lothorian, just out in the open while they're expecting their friends to show up in, you know, 15 minutes or so. So, good timing, guys. Quickie. Suddenly, the Sky Dome goes black, and the temperature drops. Fog appears, and they feel intense fear. They hear something moving out in the woods, and it's between them and the exit out of Lothlorien. Is it the doll? They don't know what it is, Danielle, but it's evil, whatever it is. How does it have control over all the elements? Well, I mean, it just has control of the dome somehow. It knows how to operate the controls. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about this. (laughs) Again, it happens because the plot wants it to happen because it's cooler as opposed to actually making any sense. How am I supposed to complain about this entire plot when all the entire plot is nonsense, Sam? <laughs> right? This is again, this is the Michael Bayification of this where it's happening because it's cool, not because it makes sense. This is again, this is why I was so worried about doing this book for this podcast and all because it is like not just a bunch of nonsense. It is nothing but nonsense. <laughs> Makes it harder. It does. And that's why I find it hard to condense it because I can't just skip to the nonsense in the book to share it with you. It's all nonsense. It's all there. (laughs) It's nonsense all the way down. And there's even nonsensical parts that don't have anything to do with the book. (laughs) I know. It's so hard to like convey this. It's it's actually a lot of fun. So freaked out, Noldoran decides to take Fujiko and run for the Enchanted Circle of Stones because he thinks, yeah, that'll protect us. The Circle of Stones, it's probably magic, but we don't know for sure. Well, given everything else in the house, it's just as likely. They barely make it there with a thing chasing behind them. And as they get into the circle, Dodoran shouts back into the woods, Listen to me! We're in the circle, do you hear me? We're in the circle! You can't come in! Which is how I imagine he said it, because that's for fun. <laughs> We're in the circle! You're not invited! No evil allowed! <laughs> Na 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 boo boo. <laughs> exactly. So I really want that to be what's happening. But he's obviously yelling it desperately, but it's more fun if he's like teasing it. So the thing just accepts this. Like, all right, well, you win this round, annoying <laughs> child boy, when your naked girlfriend hiding in a circle of stones. And so then wanders off upstairs to the Matham hole, where it smashes almost everything in the display cases by stealing a large black mace from one of the display cabinets. And we still don't know what the thing is, right? Oh, it's, we, we know what it is. They don't. <laughs> But we know it's over. That was made me. clear from the start. Evil doll. Yeah, evil doll. Fujiko and Nodoran spend a moment thinking about, like, we're relieved it's gone, but oh no, it's headed right for Jinsei and Preacher. Oh well, we can't do anything about that. <laughs> well, we loved them, but it's too late now. <laughs> yep. Preacher, walking alone, is crossing the gorge on a suspension bridge on his way to Tolkien House. I hope he doesn't fall down and die in the suspension bridge, the endless pit. He spots the rubber made out in the dark coming towards him, but it's wrapped in a sheet, and he can't quite make out what it is. He thinks it's just some person <laughs> it's wandering like a around. Ghost. <laughs> it's a ghost. He's like, hey, rubber happy man. new year, friend. 
to it as it, as it approaches him. And after when the rubber maid throws off the sheet and just smashes him upside the head with the mace, clocks him, takes him down in one swing. I think we need to uh, talk more about how the rubber maid thought a good uh, hiding idea was to put a sheet over it. <laughs> It just, well, it took the sheet that uh, Fujiko and Nodorin had been using as their love blanket, and it became like animated and wrapped around him and like conformed to its shape and it kind of it kind of hid it. But again, nonsense. Absolutely. But why? Like, why it. bother? Like, it's not, who cares? <laughs> it could again, just walk Danielle, around as a sex doll self. Like, what does it matter? <laughs> it doesn't, Danielle, but apparently I got to get the drop on Preacher, so here we go. <laughs> We're just like, hmm, I'm walking around. She is much less suspicious than a sex doll walking around. Or a person wrapped in a sheet, at least. Ooh, okay. Anyway, hit the head with a mace. I'm sorry. I interrupted an important part of the story to discuss no, the Danielle, sheet issue. It is very much an issue, and you're right, but it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. <laughs> so it, it smashes Peter upside the head, and then hurls him over the bridge into the freezing waters below, and that's the last of Preacher. Forever? Forever. He's dead. Oh, I liked Preacher. That's so sad. Also, I want to point out, I just feel compelled to, that the book killed the only black character first. Of course it did. I mean, that just, I mean, anything from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> and beyond, actually. Unless you count the sprites, which I'm not counting. The first character kills is the black character. And I'm like, come on, book. Do better. Makes me sad. Yeah. And his last thought is about how much he loves Jinsei before he dies. Poor Preacher. Poor Preacher. He's gone. Meanwhile, the sprites are having a New Year's skate on the frozen lake, but Hobart is in a bad way. He's been having nightmares. He's not sleeping well. He's he's running ragged. And so he pulls Puck aside and is like, Puck, I need to tell you something, but not here. Let's head back to my home in the clock tower. I'll tell you there. Get in the biplane. Let's go. And I'm like, why? Just tell him now. Just tell him now. No, that's not how it works, Sam. That's never how it works. He's like, I don't want anyone else to overhear. I'm like, you can wander off a little while. No one's going to overhear you. Just tell them. It's like every phone call, Sam, that's like, I can't tell you over the phone. We have to discuss this in person. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. <laughs> so anyway, they go back to the clock tower and they're immediately attacked by rats. That Rasford had set up there to ambush Hobart for his revenge on Hobart. Dun, dun, dun. There's a battle. There's some fighting. They eventually get back in the biplane and are trying to, to fly back out through the hangar. Puck uses the shotgun shell weapons that's strapped to his plane to blast some of the rats out of the way. Mm -hmm. But they start closing the hangar doors and the plane shoots out of the hangar doors, but not before it gets its wings clipped off. And then they plummet to the earth while Puck struggles to put on a parachute and yell at Hobart, who's been stabbed. He's like, Hobart, are you okay? And then they disappear into the swirling snow below. Uh-oh. Will our hero survive? I don't know. We'll find <laughs> out, maybe. <laughs> Someday. Or not. Who knows with this book? <laughs> yeah, right? It kills people pretty easily. Meanwhile, in the library, Fujiko is working when she hears a smashing sound coming from a reading room. She goes to investigate, and in the room, Jin says sees a window has been smashed open, and she hears a tapping sound up on the catwalks that sort of line the bookshelves, so like they're like two-story bookshelves, and it's a catwalk to let you access the upper level of the bookshelves. Mm -hmm. so she goes upstairs, and she sees this sheet hanging there, obscuring something behind it. See, now it's using it to its advantage. <laughs> yeah. So it approaches the sheet, and as she approaches it, the sheet gets pulled aside, and there's the rubber maid swinging that mace at her face. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now that if I saw a sheet randomly hanging up and heard weird noises, I would not approach the sheet. <laughs> no, she briefly thinks about calling for public safety, like at the desk before she leaves it, and goes to investigate. She's like, nah, I'll just go investigate on my own. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> Classic horror tropes. 
So she maced her face. Does she die too? No. So she luckily has enough reflex sense to dodge out of the way and like fall. At one point, she brings up her wrist to like block the mace and the mace hits the bracelet with the silver band and the bracelet explodes and the mace and the rubber make it hurled backwards into some books. And her wrist falls off her body. Nope. She's just <laughs> fine. And she leaps That's over- That's how explosions work, Sam, when they're on your body. It doesn't like explode, like it shatters. And- it, they, they're repelled, like the, the mace and the evil rubber made are repelled backwards. And I so that's you. the entire purpose of the bracelet. I did tell you. <laughs> it appears in this chapter and disappears in this chapter. So this is one thing that does not get a whole like thousand pages of setup. So he was smart enough to give her the bracelet to wrap around her wrist, but he wasn't smart enough to not open the box in the first place. He didn't know. Like he was, again, I think Mr. Sunshine is messing with him. Like he was compelled to open the box. I think that was Mr. Sunshine's doing. And then Mr. Sunshine was like, and now you're going to (laughs) die. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) What a punk. I hate Mr. Sunshine. Yeah. like, Is there anyone you like in this book, Danielle? No. Well, Zephyr seems fine. Zephyr. I was going to say Zephyr. She seems the coolest. (laughs) But only because we haven't spent a lot of time with her. So I really don't know much about her. Which is the common refrain of our books, Danielle. <laughs> our story, like, the characters from the least amount of time with the ones you like the best because you can project them as good people. <laughs> yeah, the less time we spend with characters, the more we like them usually in our stories. What about Blackjack? He seems cool. Yeah, I like Blackjack. I don't even mind Luther. I mean, he's a little dumb. Luther's but okay. I like him. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's sweet. He's not like malicious. He's just like kind of naive. Exactly. So Luther, Blackjack, and Zephyr are the only ones. What about Rasper? You like him? No, what? You don't like Rasper? You don't think he's cool? I mean... Yeah, Team Rasper it. I'm almost rooting for him at this point. Right? That's what I'm saying. Team Rasper it all the way. (laughs) And a a Thresh seems cool. (laughs) Thresh is like... Look, I respect Thresh. He is not a a rat of many words, but he knows what he's about and he like loves his work. That's true. He's much less wishy-washy than the other ones. Yeah, no, Thresh is like, I Thresh, Thresh end you. He does that. That's what he does. Um, you gotta appreciate his, his follow through. Yeah, he's an honest rat of his word. I like how we just like all the worst characters, like the quote unquote the worst characters, like the evil characters. Well, at least they're like, make more sense. Well, except for Rasperit, who's just warlike for no reason because we don't learn his backstory. No, but that's not his fault. That's Mr. Sunshine's fault. Yeah, that's a good point, Danielle. <laughs> so that's all on him still. I want to make like uh, one of those campaign bumper stickers that says Rasperit and Thresh for president. <laughs> I'm sure you'd have at least a handful of people who'd be like, yeah! <laughs> Rasperit and Thresh all the way! All right. Okay. Speaking of Rasperit, his... Doll, possessed doll, is knocked backwards into the bookshelves, and Jinsei uses the opportunity to escape by just vaulting over the side of the catwalk and dropping to the floor. I'd also like to point out that I'm I'm totally fine with the doll, too. The creepy doll. I mean, it's creepy. I, I don't like... I yeah, hate okay. it. I hate it with a fiery passion. But as a character, I'm, I'm here for it. You go, weird sex doll. <laughs> Living sex doll. <laughs> you do you. Fair, the living sex doll is just rasp for it again. So it's just rasp for it again, Daniel. <laughs> So that uh, that really supports my campaign for Rasford and Thresh for president. So thank you. You're welcome. And every Just to form that Rasford takes, he's the best. We do like a weird uh, sprite-sized grub. Who doesn't love a sprite-sized grub? Oh, uh, can't wait. <laughs> so after Jinsei vaults over the second story uh, catwalk and lands on the ground, she she damages her ankle. Obviously, yes, from one the fall. Would, yes. 
Yeah, instead of just taking the stairs. I don't remember why she doesn't take the stairs. Maybe it takes too long to go down the stairs. And so she decides the vault is the better way. And she runs out of the reading room, but the doll gets back up. The rubbermaid gets back up and like follows her. And had she looked behind her, she would have seen the rubbermaid. As it vaults over the railing, it slowly drifts to the ground as if in slow motion, which is pretty cool. <laughs> go, rubbermaid. You're dramatic it's as filled with air. <laughs> I think it's like not a, a blow-up doll. I think it's latex. Okay. That's even creepier. Yeah, it's like a rubber doll. It's not like uh, vinyl or whatever. Okay. I don't like the that high either. quality product they made, Danielle. <laughs> they went for the big bucks. Yeah. So Jinsei runs out of the library through the front door and she briefly considers that, you know what? There's another librarian still working in there, the head librarian, but there's nothing I can do to warn her because apparently she's never heard of like yelling. <laughs> <laughs> Run! <laughs> yeah, apparently yelling in a library is so taboo she won't even do it to save a life. <laughs> The sex doll is alive! <laughs> what would you yell? I mean, it's a good point. Maybe she's safer if she's like out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. I don't like, think the sex doll's going me. after her, so I don't think it really matters. Yeah. Well, the mermaid follows Jinsei, obviously, and Jinsei is running out across the quad, and she's running for a blue emergency phone. Like, she sees a blue light for an emergency phone, and she's like, oh, I gotta get to the emergency phone. That'll save me. I'm like, how? How is the emergency phone gonna save you? What are you gonna do? Hey, I'm being attacked by a sex doll. Come save me. We'll be there in 20 minutes. Great. <laughs> That's true. Like, there's nothing that's going to help her there. I wouldn't say that's what it was. Yeah, but it doesn't matter what you say it is. It's right behind you and clearly wants to murder you with a maze. Unless they're literally at the box waiting for her, she is out of luck. Yeah, I would agree. Timing-wise, it's not going to work. Exactly. That's what I'm getting at, mostly. But as she's running across the quad, her ankle gives out and she starts screaming for help. Just then, the rubbermaid gets on top of her and starts strangling her and and her screams are literally choked off. Luckily, the scream attracts the attention of two cops out on patrol. Oh, that's convenient. Who drive up the sidewalk into the quad looking at what they think is a sexual assault in the campus. Mm-hmm. They get out of the car and there's a big fat guy and, and, the, and the woman who are the same cops who were from back before who greeted the bohemians when they first arrived back in Ithaca. And they were having an argument like, oh, the, the, the fat cop is the one who's like, no, they're all miscreants. And the, and the other woman was like, hey, no, they're pretty cool. They respect us in their own way. Right. So they've become recurring characters, Danielle. Oh, good. I mean, I had thought about them in passing. I wondered what happened to them. Their names are Doubleday and Hollister, FYI. Good to know. I will not remember that next week. I did not expect that. I'm just You'll be you lucky know. if I remember the plot. <laughs> because they're going to come back later, I believe. So... Uh, the rubbermaid sees Doubleday, the, the large cop, get out of the car and like yell at him. And it gets up and starts walking towards him, just forgetting all about Jinsei on the ground. It's not very smart. Nope. Didn't want to finish the job. And the cop just starts emptying his revolver into the rubbermaid. But it does nothing because it's a sex doll and uh, a pistol's just not getting anything against it. Yeah, go figure. And so the rubbermaid picks him up and just like hurls him back onto the cop car and he lands and like breaks his arm. And Hollister... The other one is at the back of the car trying to get the trunk open so she can pull out a shotgun, which she does. She points out the rubbermaid just as the rubbermaid's about to get her. She pulls the trigger. Uh Uh-oh, it's empty. (laughs) That's probably not how that works. Unlucky. So the mermaid tosses the shotgun aside, grabs the face of Hollister, like pulls its fingers back to do like the three stooges poke the eyes gag, <laughs> only for real to rip out her eyes. Yeah. But just as it's about to do that, we cut to Mr. Sunshine, who's all like, no, the fat cop baby, but not this one. Too good a character to lose just yet. And he writes, And Rasperth the Grub shuddered as a great weariness came upon him. His limit reached, his magic exhausted by the night's activities. <laughs> That's a cop-out, but okay. 
hundred percent a cop out. <laughs> Mr. Sunshine is a terrible writer. He writes the most cliche, least interesting, least believable answers to all the problems. <laughs> like, oh, just at the moment when things are about to get interesting, he's like, oh, that's it. He's out of power just then. Convenient. I know. The lights go out of the mermaid's eyes. They're safe. Well, except for Preacher, who's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Preacher. And the thing is, nobody will ever find his body. Oh, Danielle, you are very wrong. Because the next few days after the examination of the mermaid happens, they're like, it's, it's just a sex doll. There's nothing magic about it. How did it attack somebody? But Jin say is like, it definitely attacked us. As do the cops say that, but no one like really pays attention to them. They all assume that they were attacked by someone else who managed to escape. And the doll was like someone that the attacker brought along with him as like a diversion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or something. They just don't even bother explaining it. They just say like, unrelated. But on Jin say's suggestion, they dredge the gorge river looking for Preacher and they find his body. Why did she think that he was there? Because remember, I remember if I, if, if I said this, but I think I said this, when she's been attacked by the roommate, she looks in its eyes and she knew immediately what had happened to Preacher, that it had been killed in the whole story. Like she, yeah, she saw- I'm pretty sure you didn't say that. <laughs> okay. I, I think I meant to say that, but we got sidetracked by the sheet. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not, not no one's fault. The, either the sheet or- No, we got sidetracked by the bracelet. That was it. <laughs> the bracelet exploding. Okay. So she somehow magically knew. When she looked into the-, the creature's eyes of the, of the mermaid she had this vision of what happened to preacher and she knew yeah, no shenanigans but that's fine whatever they found his body i'm glad they found his body meanwhile some of the sprites found hobart's body in the wreckage of the aircraft he's in a coma but puck has not been found yet as is custom, they search for seven days, then just assume he's dead and his body has evaporated, as all sprite bodies do. Sitting by his side, Zephyr hears Hobart stir and say a word she hears as eyes, but he's really whispering is Ides. Ides. Ides! <laughs> You'd be like, what? Exactly. Like, Ides of what? It just means the middle. So, finally, last chapter... An eye to the eyes is the name of this chapter. There are three architect students sitting in Greenwich Village at a bar or a coffee shop or something discussing the Green Dragon Parade. Last year, if you remember, Danielle, was a disaster. The dragon collapsed. Mm-hmm. The leader, Loretta Stodges, is suggesting that due to the failure, they need to go even bigger this year to like show them that we got this. We'll be gods. We'll be the most impressive people ever. Our names will go down to history if we come back from that failure and make an even bigger and better dragon. These were the architecture students. It shouldn't be architecture students, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the ones that the Sun newspaper was making fun of. Yeah. Right. I'm just saying, if they can't make the creature as Well, I mean, this students. is the argument she's having with her compatriot, because one of them, who's just like another architecture student, is like, if it collapsed last time because it was too big, making it bigger is just going to make it worse, right? <laughs> Often, yes. And she's like, that's your problem to figure out. You're the one who's going to figure this out. And that's what she says to all his questions. Like, in a moment, we'll get to how, like, she wants it to have wings. She wants it to actually breathe fire. And because it's usually, they set it on fire at the end of the parade, but she wants it to breathe fire on the run-up to that point. And the guy's like, how are we going to do that? She's like, you'll just figure it out, man. I trust you to figure it out. And she's a terrible leader. <laughs> that would drive me nuts. Meanwhile, her other compatriot is, quote-unquote, like a total sex machine and has his hand perpetually on her thigh and is kind of like moving it up towards her. And every time he gets a little too close, she like wraps it with a T-square underneath the table, which does not deter him too much. That's gross. It's very gross. Every like dude in this book is super gross. Yeah, I would agree with that. For the most part. So anyway, they plan to make a new, bigger, badder, fire-breathing green dragon for the parade. How are they going to do that? No one knows. But they have a few months to figure it out. All right. Looking forward to this mess where the dragon no doubt comes to life. (laughs) (laughs) The very last sentence of this chapter is the narrator saying, in the end, they figured it out just fine. So, you know, 
Thanks for telling us that. That's good. I was really worried there for a minute. And that's we're going to wrap it up here, Danielle, for this part of Fool on the Hill. Can we talk about how bad we feel for Ragnarok that he's lost his brother? Yeah, brother, his brother, his best friend, and how this happened while they saw this unresolved conflict between them. So he's going to think for the rest of his life, I should have just figured it out with him before yeah, he died. Yeah, he's going to be like... He's so sad. <laughs> He already has enough self-loathing and, like, regret in his life. This is going to be on top of that. I agree. This book is just dumping on Ragnarok. I, like, don't appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, also poor Jinsei, but, like, poor Preacher, too. What did he do to deserve that? He did absolutely nothing to deserve that. And I feel bad for Jinsei, too, but she doesn't seem to have as much past trauma as Ragnarok does. That's fair. And also, the moment dated like a month or two. It's not like they've been brothers for years. That's so sad. I also enjoyed that we finally come to terms with how much we hate all the characters in the book. I mean, that was evident from the early onset. <laughs> like, I didn't even like George. He's supposed to be the main character. <laughs> well, how do you feel about the George Aurora pair? Eh, whatever. I don't care. What I want to see is I want to <laughs> see Brian and maybe the Rubbermaid hook up as like a power couple. <laughs> Possessed by rest for it. I think Brian deserves better. Brian deserves way better than anything he's had. Like again, I don't just I don't agree with his philosophy on a lot of things. You know, necessarily his beliefs about what people should and should not do in terms mm-hmm. of like you know. I'm sure he has a dismal view of homosexuality, for instance, or alternative lifestyles. Which you know, whatever. That's not something that is okay. People should be allowed to be whatever they want. Right. But he is not actively harming anybody, at least. And he has not done anything dishonest or mean to deserve the treatment of Aurora like Aurora has done to him. Yeah. And he's also like, what, his early 20s? Yeah. Like he's, like not, he's still, he's still figuring, figuring himself, himself out. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully he can like come around to be a better person. <laughs> but yeah, he doesn't deserve to be treated the way uh, Aurora treated him. So looking forward to our conclusion, Danielle, next time? I am. What will happen? Does the sex doll come back? Will Ragnarok ever not have any self-loathing? Will the grub thing die? Or will he be the new main character? <laughs> will George need to fight hope. another dragon? What will happen <laughs> next week on Book Retorts? <laughs> that was an excellent, excellent <laughs> teaser, Danielle. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, if any of you out there want to write in and suggest a slogan for the Rasferit Thresh <laughs> <laughs> uh, campaign for president, please write in and send me your best campaign slogan for Rasford and, and Thresh. Yeah, we'll post the heck out of that all over social media for you. <laughs> yeah, you, you can write us those slogans at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet Instagram or Facebook us at bookretorts. Or if you feel like you want somehow more of our nonsense and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash bookretorts. Patreon! <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. Even though I cut out on Skype, I still imagined you said it. You know what? It's into February and I still have not thought of a better one. So I, I know great. I said I, I the for the new year. It's good branding, Danielle. It's good branding. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Well, until next time then. Bye. Take care, everybody.
And oh, sirens. Thank you for singing along. You're welcome. <laughs>